What's up, guys? It's Modern Craftsman. Monday. Monday. John's missing again. So John... John didn't even have lacrosse today. He didn't. And unfortunately... Well, we don't want to... John was here intermittently. He just doesn't say anything, but he just continued to lie. Now everyone's going to be like... Everyone's going to be like, I I only tune in because I want to listen to John. And now we just lost everyone. No, he's here intermittently, just in and out, and doesn't say anything. (laughs) He's he's here in spirit. Okay, so so everyone decides to now stay. Well, this week, as you guys might know, we have Trent Presler from Presler Woodshop. Not to be confused Uh, with the guy from Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor. Yes, you you did think that's who we were interviewing Dude, today. I actually knew. A little I, was bit, ju- I knew. Um, I was just messing around. I, I just don't know if I believe you right now. No, I hundred percent knew. Like I feel like you're like, oh, he's kind of a craftsman. I, I heard just, he did some woodworking. I think he does like scores for movies and stuff now too. But it's, does he? it's the other Trent Reznor. No, it's Presley. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys may have seen him on Instagram. If you follow anyone that builds canoes, uh, he is probably the dude that you follow uh he he has made quite the name for himself in that uh but come to find out it's actually uh just a side gig so hell of a side tuned. gig yeah he even talks about how much money he sells these canoes for oh yeah that came pretty early on but stick around for the whole thing it's good see yeah. john we talk about uh, he is yeah can we See, he's been in and out the whole time. <laughs> See, people now people hear Johnny's voice and be like, "All right, I'm listening to this one." It's intermittent, intermittent. Yeah. But no, we talk about some serious, um, some serious, you know, life related. I don't know what I'm trying to say. We talk about a lot. It, it the yeah. conversation really kind of runs the gamut, things. and it's. Um, it's funny. I mean, it, it it goes from business to mentors to father-son relationship to um, sexuality. It goes from, I mean, it's it touches on everything, uh, writing a book to um, selling a vineyard. Honestly, if you were to bullet point out this entire podcast, you'd be like, what the hell is going on right now? <laughs> but the one center... Is that no matter what, at any cost, it always comes back to quality. Yeah, which may not be the best financial decision you ever make, but you'll sleep well at night. Well, unless you're on TikTok. Yeah, that's true. Guys, this podcast is brought to you by Duration Millwork Molding in Millwork. So you have a print calling for James Hardy Artisan Siding, and you just found out they discontinued the line. What to do? Do what others are doing and move the specification over to duration. Longer lengths, no required edge sealing, no clearance restrictions, easy and safe to work with, complimentary moldings, and the authentic look of wood siding. And if you need a special reveal or profile, that's not a problem either. To learn more about Duration Polyash products, please visit their website at durationmillwork.com and be sure to check them out on Instagram. Trent! What's up, my man? Hey, how you doing? So, Gosh. I have been trying to get you on this podcast for three years, and you said we weren't good enough until a certain point. <laughs> I don't remember that. I don't know. I need to see the documents. That's um, okay. I'll, I'll pull up the DMs. No, I, I, I'm we're I'm excited to have you on. Excited to um, 
talked directly. I feel like we've talked through DM for the last three years, like I said, been asking yeah. to be on, and it hasn't aligned. And I think I think it was probably. I don't know, maybe six months ago, I, I finally convinced you to do it, and you text me back, and you're like, hey, there's no openings until June. I was like, yeah, man. You know, you snooze, you lose. <laughs> I know. Well, uh, I sort of, um, it, the timing ended up working out really great. Uh, yeah, I thought, well, it'd be great to talk to you around the time that my book comes out. Yeah. And um, so, uh, so here we are. But yeah, Instagram's a crazy thing. Like, I feel like I know you. And I've, we've talked for so many years, and um, and now here we are. And this was sort of a byproduct of launching the book, too. I did quite a few conversations online with, with folks that I'd known for years on Instagram. And I think because of the pandemic, this is as real as it gets sometimes. So it's Which is wild. It's fantastic. It's wild, right? So, Trent, <laughs> so here for, we are. for those that don't know who you are, let's get, get a quick introduction. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, my name's Trent Pressler. My Instagram is Pressler Woodshop. Um, I build wooden canoes uh, as kind of a, I guess, a side business to my main job, which is uh, as CEO of a winery here on Long Island in New York. Um, I have a PhD from Cornell in horticulture. I've always been in farming, agriculture. I grew up on a ranch in South Dakota. And um, about seven years ago, uh, my father passed away, and my inheritance was um, his toolbox and some of his tools from our cattle ranch in South Dakota. And I used that to build my first uh, wooden boat. And that's really kind of what I, how I got started in woodworking and, and building stuff. But um, you know, my whole adult life, my whole career, I've been in the wine business and, and running vineyards. So this was a bit of a departure. Did you have but, siblings um, that you had to fight? for the uh to split the inheritance with <laughs> no i mean actually tragically i have a sister who died um at 26 around the same time oh so gosh. i uh yeah which is also part of the part of the whole story but um so no <laughs> all yours it, all mine yeah that toolbox you know my dad was kind of a broke cattle rancher and um he was like a rodeo star back in the 60s but um went through a string of hard times and didn't have a whole lot, um, but here we are, and it definitely changed the gift that changed my life. And after years after I finished building my first canoe, um, I decided to write a book about it, and that's probably in part why we're here today chatting. <laughs> I would say, yeah, I would agree with it being in part of why. Yeah, uh, and you were kind enough to actually send us a copy of the book. I'm the world's slowest reader, so I've not. <laughs> I'm, I'm still trying to finish the one that you that I was reading prior to you sending it. Um, but it, <laughs> it's fine. sitting on my nightstand and it, I'm, I'm excited to read it. And, you know, I think it's interesting the, you know, obviously through social media and hearing you talk about the fact that you got this toolbox and you went from getting a toolbox where I, I feel like the majority of people would just kind of take that, put it in the garage and, you know, maybe yeah. revisit it one, you know, at, at some point. What was it right. that, you know, how, how soon after getting that toolbox, uh, did you get that toolbox knowing that you were going to do something with it? Um, not really. No, I, I came home back to New York. I had road trip to South Dakota in my car and it was like the dead of winter. And I got back to, to Long Island. I live right on the ocean out here on Eastern Long Island. And I was staring at the water in the middle of this historic blizzard in 2015. You probably remember cause you live in Boston. We got like oh, yeah. five feet of snow that yeah. year. <laughs> And I was basically trapped in my house for a week and thinking, how am I going to honor my dad and, and my sister? And what should I do with 
these tools. And since I lived on the water, I through a whole series of kind of revelations and events, I decided to build a boat, but it wasn't, it wasn't like I um, had any idea what I was doing or knew what I was getting into. And probably if I did, I might not have done it. Um, <laughs> but I certainly didn't know when I got, when I got it, when, you know, I went back and I actually saw dad uh, right before he died. And we talked about the tools just briefly. Um, and he just said it was some stuff from the ranch that he wanted me to have. Um, and my mom was really the one who said, you know, we thought maybe you'd find a project or something to work on. Or mom was like, maybe you'd make me a cutting board or something. <laughs> so <laughs> instead I made a 20 foot wooden yeah. boat, but <laughs> cutting board might've been you easier. probably had to buy all new tools to make the boat too. I did. Like, yeah. I can use yeah. two or three of these and I need to buy exactly. everything else. Yeah. And that's like a, that's a chapter of the book where I had that realization. Cause I went into it thinking, Oh sure, yeah. This this I'm sure this toolbox has everything I need to build a boat, and it had almost nothing of what I needed to build a boat. So it just provided like the inspiration and the impetus uh, to to do something. And it's funny because a lot of people in interviews um, actually come into it thinking that I literally that like everything was contained in that toolbox that I needed right. to build a boat. And I say, well, I mean, I used here's the hammer and here. Or, was the hammer and here's the rasp and a few other choice little things. But, you know, I was ripping strips of cedar and juniper like 20 feet long and routing them. And I had to buy power tools and make this, you know, a real shop. But in part, you know, that was kind of the gift from dad too, where it was like, all right, how am I going to make this work? Um, it's always been a sort of struggle to make things work in our family. And, and if you don't know how to do something, you had to just do it yourself. Where did you so. start, you know, I, I want to ask this question. The the canoe that ended up, I believe it was over overseas somewhere, and there's beautiful photos of it floating in the water. Is that was that your first canoe, or am I incorrect thinking that? No, um, the first one I did okay. not sell. The first one is still um, in my shop, but I did. I have sold subsequent canoes to client private clients okay. around the world. Including Switzerland and the Hamptons and a few so other. So Switzerland places, is but... the one I'm thinking of. I remember, I remember yeah. being, seeing it shipped and and then unboxed and then they put it in this, I don't know, this surreal looking piece of water, and it was just you know. Yeah. And I remember you talking about how much you sold it for and people were commenting on it and you were like, yeah, but it really doesn't equate to that much when you think about how much time I have into it. But you know, yeah, the yeah. where how did where did you even start like you, you decided to to go the boat route but how did you even start understanding what it was going to take to build it or or were you looking towards mentors or buying a book or um you know i had a couple of books i did a lot of research there was one book in particular that was um it's called building a strip canoe it was published in the 70s or 80s by some old guy up in Maine. And, um, you know, it was more like an instructional his, pamphlet. His than dad it was died a real book. toolbox, right? <laughs> that guy who wrote the book? Yeah, right. Yeah, that exactly. <laughs> He's probably built, I don't know, like something like 500 oh, canoes, uh, that guy. And, um, you know, and it was like these step-by-step -step instructions, almost like a cookbook. And then I Googled things. I looked on YouTube and um, Nick Offerman and Jimmy Duresta had built a canoe a few years before. Uh, which Nick paddled on the last episode of Parks and Recreation. So I reached out to them and talked to them a little bit, but it was a lot of um, it was a lot of trial and error and kind of blind faith that if I just did this step by step, eventually it might work out. And um, the the price was something that I arrived at 
later when it was all done and, and they had gotten some media attention and then people started calling to place orders and, or they wanted to buy the canoe that I made with my dad's tools. And I said, I couldn't sell that one. It was too sentimental, but I said, I'd be happy to make you another one just like it. <laughs> and yeah, I charge a hundred thousand dollars for the canoes and that's, um, you know, if it takes me a year to build, I think that's probably more than fair. Um, most craftsmen might not um, think of it that way, and I've taken a lot of shit for that, certainly from traditional boat builders. Um, but I think there's like an epidemic in this country of craftsmen who undervalue their work. 100%, and, yeah. you know, like if you spend a year building something, you got to pay yourself. Yeah. And you have to pay yourself well. And like I had costs associated with it. It's not like I even made that much money off of a $100,000 canoe, um, which other people also laugh at. But like, I say these things not to draw attention or create controversy on Instagram, but like they're absolutely a hundred percent true. Um, I see people a lot like, well, I spent all this time working on this beautiful piece of furniture and, oh, I might charge like maybe $1,500 or $2,000. And I'm like, dude, right. <laughs> that's a $17,000 chair that you just made. Right. Um, but it's, you know, the race to the bottom in America, like everything, everyone wants everything cheaper and faster and, so here we are Wait, trying to deal with that. How did you come to the $100,000 price point? Well, uh, gosh, that's a funny story. I, uh, <laughs> there was um, a freelance journalist in New York who had heard about my story, and she asked if she could write an article about me for the Wall Street Journal Sunday magazine. Um, this was 2016. Okay. And it was a full-page article and a feature story like opposite Serena Williams in the centerfold, and it was like, it was beautiful. They sent a photographer out for a whole day. And the article was mostly about how I'd been inspired to build a canoe after my father died. And then Nick Offerman was um, kind of part of that inspiration as well. But it, she finished the article. And um, this was like before it, it was going to come out 4th of July weekend in 20, I guess, 16. And like a, a week or so before the editor called and she said, all right, the article looks great. The photography is great, but we just need to know one last piece of information, which is how much does the canoe cost? And I was like, well, it's not for sale. This is like my dad, dad's tools. Like I was like, ah, panicked because I said, I don't have a price. And uh, she said, well, you have to have a price because this is the Wall Street Journal and everything is for sale. And our readers will expect that if we're doing a full page article about this beautiful wooden boat that like they can buy it or something like it. So she gave me an hour and I hung up the phone. Um, I called my boss. So the owner of my winery, although he passed away last year, sadly, he was the CEO of New Line Cinema for, for 30 years. So he made he was executive producer of The Lord of the Rings and Austin Powers. And um, he was on the board of trustees of the Museum of Modern Art. And he's like a father figure to me. And I called him and I told the whole dilemma. I was like, they want, they want to know what it costs. And he said, well, you'd be a fool to charge anything less than $100,000. Uh, because if you charge, like, say, 20000 no one will take you seriously. They'll think, wow, what a dipshit. He spent a year building something, and he's only charging twenty grand. Like, <laughs> who, what is he doing? <laughs> um, he said, and in the contemporary art world, people don't flinch at charging a half million dollars for, like, a two-foot-by-two-foot two oil painting. You know, like, pricing in the art world is a completely different animal than in craft. But he said, mm. think of it as a piece of art. So charge at least 100000 and then people will take it seriously, and you'll probably get orders for them. Um, and he was absolutely correct. So I called her back, and I said, it's 100000 And she said, great, thanks. She hung up the phone. And then the next week, I bought the Wall Street. Hold on, hold yeah. on, hold on. 
<laughs> when you called her back and you said it's a hundred thousand yeah. dollars, what were you? What was going through your mind at that point? Oh, I mean, yeah, I like, was like. This is, this is crazy. I can't believe I'm going to tell this chick this boat's $100,000. Yeah, kind of. And I tried to sound like all natural and calm. Like, yeah, so I thought about it and here's the price. You know, it's going to be 100000 if anyone would like one. And she didn't flinch at all. I mean, she was like, okay, great, thanks. And like hung she, up. Like, she, she erased the five <laughs> 500000 and rewrote it. Yeah. She <laughs> right. had like a placeholder for a half a million. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Well, to my horror, then a week later, I went to the newsstand in New York City. I bought a copy of the Wall Street Journal. I open it up, and the headline says, the world's first $100,000 canoe. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, what have I done? It was the headline. It became the story. Not so much that I built the boat with Dad's tools. The story became that there's this guy who's audacious enough to charge hundred grand for a canoe. Oh, my God. And I just remember holding the paper like my hands were shaking, like, what is going on? So that led to a whole cascade of things, because like a week after that, Esquire magazine called and they said, are you the guy that makes the world's most expensive canoes? This is amazing. And I was like, um, I guess I am. I've never sold one at 100,000. But so then um, about a month after that, Rob Report magazine called. Are you the guy that makes the world's most expensive canoes? And it just was like, and then the New York Times, and it just snowballed. And then I actually, people started reading the articles. There's one in the Financial Times of London, and um, people started calling him, just placing orders. And no one even asked about the price because the price was in the art in the headlines. Like, right, that's and how it, they found you. Uh, yeah, so it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. And believe me, there were moments when I was like, um, you know, I felt like a total poser that like. Uh, I'm saying that I'm the world's the builder of the world's most expensive canoes, but I hadn't sold one at that price yet. So when I finally did, then I was like, okay, now that's a legitimate title. <laughs> so so let's go back to you know this first canoe that got you here. Where was the media coming from? Like where where, where how were people following along with this? Um, Instagram. It started with Instagram. Um, Is that when, when you started Presley Woodshop? The, yes. The, the handle. Yeah, when I um, – actually, it's in the book too. There's an interesting moment when I went to buy lumber for the first time. I went to a, a, a nice a fine wood purveyor on Long Island. And when I walked in, they asked me for my corporate name because they don't really sell to the general public so much. They sell to accounts and builders and contractors in the Hamptons. And I kind of panicked on the site because I was like, uh, I don't know. I put like Pressler Woodshop on the <laughs> on the form, but I hadn't yet even started the LLC. Um, and then shortly after that, I started Instagram at Pressler Woodshop, mostly because my mom wanted to see pictures of what I was doing with Dad's tools. Um, so that's kind of how that all started. And um, I forget the first part of your question now. Um, There's got to yeah. be other people who are building canoes comparable to this, right? No. I don't think so. Nobody? Really? You're the only one? Um, there are probably five um, canoe and kayak builders in North America. Um, but no one does it to the level of luxury and detail that, that I do. And I say that not – I think that if any of them were listening, they might not be mad at me for saying that because I do go completely over the top with my canoes. Yeah. I have like bronze trim and leather seats and crystal bezel uh, – nautical compasses and and my thought with the canoe after the whole hundred thousand dollar thing happened um 
you know, canoes have always been a product of their time and place that they were built. And so over history, they were built practically using materials that were available to people in their time. So whether that was birch bark or um, canvas on frame, uh, I felt like my time and place was here I am, this wine industry executive living um, in the Hamptons or the East End of Long Island, and my canoe should be kind of blingy. Like it should be like different. And every canoe historically and every you can't, canoe, you can't put rims on a canoe. You, know? <laughs> you can you jack them trailer. up and, and put that like purple you under you a can't tint, Yeah, You can't tint a canoe. <laughs> well, in terms of if there are other people doing it, no one's quite doing it this way because what I decided early on was I wanted to apply the principles of super yachts to canoes. Mm. So throughout history, canoes have always been very utilitarian. Like people expect that they're lightweight and you can drag them through the woods, um, you know, scuffing up the bottom and then dump them in a lake and and that they're not really um, meant to be luxurious. They're meant to be just like beat around kinds of things. And I thought, well, what if you turn that on its head and what if you build a canoe that's um, not utilitarian at all and not useful at all in the sense that a normal canoe is, but that is rather heavy and full of luxurious trim details and has the same kind of aesthetic as a super yacht. And so that's kind of how I ended up going down that path and why I think, you know, for many reasons why the price is justifiable. It's. I mean, if you're the only person doing it, then you can somewhat name your price at that point too, because yeah. if there's nothing else, there's no comps on the market. Um, then it's, right. it's whatever you want. I mean, if there, if there's yeah. a market, if somebody's going to pay a million dollars for it, then you can sell a million dollar canoe. It's, you just right. have to have the customer. Yeah. There's a, there's an ask for every seat in America, as they say. Um, there's, you know, there are guys building really high quality canoes and kayaks, um, including one Nick Shad who lives in Connecticut and he's been doing it a very long time and his boats are, are gorgeous and they're his own designs. Um, you know, there's nothing like particularly flashy about them. I think he charges maybe twenty or twenty-five thousand, um, but it's not his full-time gig either. He also teaches at the at the Wooden Boat School in Brooklyn, Maine, and um, he's a great guy. And but for the most part, canoes are built as uh, by hobbyists and people that just want to have one and build it in their garage. Um, there's not like you can just dial up a place and order a wooden canoe. It's not. Yeah, I would say really that, that the, there's probably not a massive market of people who want to spend a hundred thousand dollars and up on a canoe that you're going to build this, like, you know, pump these things out and sell millions of them on Amazon. No, no not at all. I mean, I've been doing, I've been doing one a year. Yeah, you could probably um, book up for your life at this point. Pretty close. Yeah. I'm an old man. I'm 44. <laughs> like I, how many more canoes have I got in me? <laughs> um, but both, it's funny. A couple of the canoes that I've sold, um, went to clients where like the, Basically, the dad in the family had his power yacht or his wooden, his whatever hacker craft or, or Chris craft, and he got they got the canoe for their kids. Ah, uh, have you had <laughs> have you had any callbacks? Callbacks like <laughs> quality quality control. This canoe leaks. Oh <laughs> no no, <laughs> nothing like that. But I also make everyone sign a contract in the very beginning, so um, you know it's like the sale is final, like a piece of art, basically. Right the deed transfers at the time that the money clears my account and it's theirs. Yeah. I mean, realistically it, at the price point, the amount of time that goes into it, you're, you're not selling, um, this where somebody's going to look and say, 
You know what? Uh, I was really thinking I was going to spend seventy five, but we'll do the hundred. Like you, you have people <laughs> who are just coming to you because this is what they want, and they have right. the funds to do it. Right. Yeah, I have a new client who's a country music singer in Nashville, whose name I can't say, but he has a house on a lake in Tennessee, and um, he's not even going to use it. Yeah. He he has a sixteen foot wide fireplace, uh, stone mantle fireplace, chimney, he whatever you want to call it, and. I'll, yeah, I'll be horizontally. But like <laughs> honestly, at a hundred grand, that way makes way more sense to me to invest in a piece of artwork that's going to be like artwork in more of a sense than something like oh, I'm yeah. going to spend a hundred grand on a canoe and we're just gonna we're gonna leave it at the lake. Right. The kids can yeah. take it out and fish out of it. I'd be way more comfortable with that thing hanging above a fireplace. Right. Yeah. I mean, he said that the, he wants it to be usable if they ever decided to take it off the wall. Um, so I'm going to build it as though it will be paddled. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to work with another Instagram woodworker, you know, Frank Strassa Furniture in Texas. He's an amazing, incredible furniture builder. So I'm working with him. He's going to build like a bracket for the wall. So it's going to be mounted um, uh, horizontally, so 16 feet wide, but, but mm -hmm. straight up. So that like it's you see the bottom of it, yeah. And uh, so we got to build a bracket that they're going to build into the um, to the fireplace to hold about a hundred pounds weight. Um, but yeah, and I've been working on this for probably three months now with their designers and their interior, uh, it, their architects. And you their know, designers. it's a conversation that I have a lot, of, you know, about the homes that we build and the homes that we want to be building, and one of the often. Oftentimes I, I compare it to like custom cars or restoring cars and, you know, mm -hmm. and you can restore, you, let's just use a Camaro, for example, you can restore a Camaro and spend $75,000, restoring that Camaro. You go to, if you were to ever sell it, there's a likelihood that you're not going to recoup the money, but there's guys out right. there that are sp spending a half a million dollars restoring these Camaros. And there's this threshold where it's, you spend a half a million dollars you've now got got it to a point where people respect how much time has went into that and they'll spend and they'll right. and they'll spend 3 quarters of a million dollars to buy that and it's and i feel like it's yeah. this tipping point and i and i relate it to you know for us as a home builder we want to build homes in the same mindset of this we want this to be forever we want this to be consider right. you, you to consider this as an investment forever not 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 a return right. on investment and if even if there is a return on investment, we want to build it with the mindset that we're building something so unique or so well thought out that it doesn't become, you know, a, a comp. It's, it's not compared to what is in the neighborhood. Yeah. It's it's someone walks this property and values right. everything that's went into it. And I think that. Well, sure. And the uniqueness is what's what's key to that, because like um, I think in your line of work, too. Comps can sometimes be they're a terrible. disservice. It, 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 it works yeah, against, cause... you know, there, there's a whole other part of my business that I've been trying to uncan for the last 18 months. And it's to, I want, you know, yeah. we, we want to really focus on building a for sale product, a, a spec as you would call it, you know, ultra mm -hmm. contemporary modern. And I've, every time I, I, I the biggest thing that I'm, I'm is, is a hurdle for me is the financial backing. Where it's because the realtor says, right. no, 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 that you got to actually make that 4,500 square feet and it's got to have, it's like, no, this isn't, this isn't right. comparing. This is not the same thing as what's uh, next door. And I'm close. Like yeah. I'm very, very close with this one particular property that might give me the opportunity to 
kind of proof of concept. And I th- and I'm listening to you talk about sure. this this um this canoe yeah. and thinking of the same like I'm gonna I want to <sighs> name my price and then I become the the guy that does that. Right. Well, yeah. You know, there are other. I'm gonna give you a couple other examples, and I think in home building, it might seem totally disparate. But there's two that I'm thinking of. One is thoroughbred horse racing, and the other one is wineries. So I've worked in the wine business for 20 years, and wineries often, when they sell, don't have any comps. Um, they're prestige assets, and the, you, it's harder to find a buyer who understands that it's worth a certain number when there are no comps anywhere in the neighborhood. Um, but once in a while, someone comes along who doesn't care about comps and just wants this beautiful prestige asset. And for example, here at the winery that I am CEO of Bedell Sellers, we've listed it for sale um, since the owner died. And it, right now it's just under 20 million. And there are no comps anywhere on the East Coast for a vineyard selling for $20 million. In California, yeah, but... Um, <laughs> And so every time someone comes and the real estate people are like, well, what do we talk to about comps and this and that? You know, people spend $30 million for a house on the ocean in the Hamptons that's on like right. one acre. People spend $100,000 on <laughs> <And> canoes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it's like if people start talking about comps with me, my eyes glaze over because I'm like, we all know that this country, well, the world, especially this country, has enough wealth, there's enough people and where we live, you and me, in between Boston and New York, that um, we can find buyers for things that maybe don't care about so much about, well, who did it before and who did it in the neighborhood the same way. And in fact, they'd be more excited that like, oh, well, Nick built this awesome house. It's one of a kind. There's nothing like it. And it's priced accordingly. So I think it's a great goal. It's a way to differentiate yourself. Is a, is a vineyard the type of thing... Um, I feel as though that would be just somebody again, who wants that property, wants to own a vineyard and is not necessarily looking at it from a financial investment. Like what's the return I'm going to get on selling wine at this point. Right. Correct. Yes. Um, correct. So it, yeah. it, as you said, it's very similar to, um, what you do, what a, what a lot of high-end builders do, what people are doing with cars and everything else, where it's, you find somebody who just wants that. They're not buying that vineyard to be able to, you know, make a million dollars a year on selling wine. They're buying it because they have the means to do it. And that's a lifestyle that they want. They want to be able to do that. It doesn't necessarily matter if they make a dollar off of it or if it costs them money, that's just what they want. Exactly. The same thing with thoroughbred horses, people that buy thoroughbreds, which are usually, um, well, a lot of them are like Saudi Arabian princes or people just titans of business. They don't do it because they're like, hmm, let's see what, you know, our return will be. I mean, the the oats alone, <laughs> you know, like, and then the horse breaks its leg, like whatever. They never know. They all lose money. But it's a passion project. And the people that buy your homes, I think um, they have the money and they're going to be passionate about it and they want it and they'll get it. Is there ever, you know, in the consideration, and this is something I battle with, you know, it's so nice to to work with people that want to spend, you know, a lot of money and make something really beautiful and really, you know, well thought out. But the mm-hmm. other, there's a part of me that also thinks about like, well, what could I do for the greater good? What could I do for the greater, you know, to make a bigger impact on the country or humanity in general? And it's like, can I can I take what I've learned mm-hmm. in these, you know, ultra expensive projects and attribute that back to the quote-unquote middle class or 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 the lower class 
is that ever you know is that ever a consideration in you for the canoes or and i kind of i stopped myself there because i wasn't sure which direction <laughs> i wanted to go with that but it it just in general i i guess you know the th i think i can it's 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 a yeah. tough question to, to yeah ask, well a couple things um I do feel like at some point I would like to make, if I had the bandwidth, it'd be cool to make a line of less expensive canoes that, I guess yeah, I um, yeah, that weren't so tricked out and that I could, if I had a bigger space and some employees, maybe we could pump them out and um, sell them for less. Uh, I've also had some visions about doing something uh, with kids, but I haven't gotten quite to nail the idea down yet, but there is an organization in the Bronx that I've been involved with um, for a few years. It's called Rocking the Boat. And um, it's in the South Bronx actually, which is the one of the poorest zip codes in America. And they teach kids how to build wooden boats after school. It's the most amazing, incredible organization. And after they all build a boat at the end of the year, then they like row them around uh, the Bronx River for their biology class. And they teach them how to sail in, um, in the in the bay there uh, kind of over by the whitestone bridge and um it's fantastic i participated in a fundraiser they did a few years ago where they had teams of people rowing boats all the way around the entire island of manhattan which was like the hardest thing i've ever done and i didn't train for it and i almost died it was just <laughs> like we were all cramping up by the end and we had to be towed by the coast guard because we were drifting we were like drifting out to the Statue of Liberty. It was a disaster. But we made the Today Show and we raised a lot of money for that organization. Um, but yeah, I've, I've wondered sometimes maybe I'd like to help maybe get some kids involved. Um, there was also an organization that I, I devoted a whole chapter to in my book called Essex Industries. And they're based in upstate New York in the Adirondacks. They make parts for wooden boats and canoes. They make baskets, canoe seats, canoe rails, canoe paddles. Um, and all the employees at Essex Industries have some type of disability. Um, either they're differently abled with their body or their mind, or maybe they are recovering addict, or they just had a rough go of life. Um, but I, I devoted a whole chapter to them in my book because I wanted people to know like that there's organizations like this out there that do really cool stuff uh, and help people that need a leg up. Um, and I bought a lot of the finishing parts to my canoe from them. Like I bought my first seats from them and my first pair of top railings or gunnels and some paddles from them. That's, I guess that's what I was getting at is in, in short, how, how to give back. Yeah. Because, you know, I think, you know, again, we, we, a lot of us, you know, and people that listen, they want to be, they want to be building really expensive things. They want to be working mm -hmm. on high end projects and, you know, and there's a lot of people out there that are unapologetically, expensive um for sometimes no reason mm -hmm. and they take advantage of that and kind of just that's their main focus always right. but what it sounds like is that you you know there is this level of giving back and taking what you know you started as a passion project because of your dad and you're giving back into different aspects into that industry right. and and trying to offer more you know that's a big motivation for why i wrote a book too because I sensed that I was becoming, I guess I hate the word, but I was becoming famous for being the expensive canoe guy. And, right. but there was so much more behind the story that I knew that people weren't even aware of. Uh, 
I mean, most people didn't even know that I started because my dad and my sister died and I was like desperately sad and wanted to do something with myself. Um, and there's even more to the story. I was um, estranged from my dad for 14 years before he died. Um, he was an evangelical Christian and I'm gay and we just did not see eye to eye on anything. And when I came out of the closet, that was it. Like he never wanted to speak. And um, how old were you? I was about uh, 22 in graduate it's, school. Yeah. Yeah. I was working on my PhD at Cornell um, when it all happened. And I, um, you know, there was this whole backstory to why I started doing it. And so part of why I wrote the book was to give back in the sense that I was giving. I wanted to share a lot of the lessons that I learned from the experience um, and hopefully help some other people along the way. I was going to mention, I love that there's dogs in the background. Uh, oh, that's I thought, just one. I, I thought for it some was yours. Reason. She never barks and today she wants to bark. No, I don't have, my dogs are upstairs. I'm keeping them out of this situation because <laughs> they would definitely ruin it if they had the opportunity to. Um, but, uh, what I was, oh, I was going to say, if you read slow, I don't know if you're into audiobooks, but I also, we recorded an audiobook and it's nine hours long. You can just um, put on your headphones, oh, can, but. I can get through that. one work. Though. Yeah. Yeah, I could get through that a lot faster than uh, a reading. Um, so, so, sorry, going back. So you were 22 years old and your dad kind of, you know, decided to just not talk to you for 14 years. Was was that, and I'm, I'm not doing the, the math in my head, but is that bringing, was that bringing you right to his final moments? Pretty much. When you guys, yes. when you guys started talking again? That was it, yeah. We, um, I mean, it wasn't, that we never ever talked but we um things were just cold it was like a cold war i mean i i did go like eight years at one point without seeing him ever um and when we talked it was like a couple of sentences maybe um but mm -hmm. he certainly never wanted to ask anything about my personal life and were your parents married yes parents were married still married well they were married yeah and they uh, were married for 40 some years and um about two weeks before he died, he called and invited me home for Thanksgiving. And um, I was kind of like, all right, well, and I hadn't been home in, to South Dakota in about eight years at that point. And uh, so I went and I actually road tripped because I just got this new puppy and I had a car and I was like, ah, let me just take a road trip and get on the open road. And um, But I got there and I realized as soon as I got there that he was very sick. Um, because we never really spoke, I didn't know. I I knew from like seven years before that he had colon cancer, but like I never heard anything else about it. It was like, sure. oh, he got some chemo and it's probably fine. But like you never got much detail out of dad. Like he was a really re reserved kind of shut down stoic cowboy type Vietnam veteran. Um, and so I got home and he was just really sick. And it was clear right away that I had um, – that this was maybe going to be the last time I could see him, but I was still kind of half in denial about it, um, even in the moment. But yeah, we had Thanksgiving dinner, and that ended up being our last—the last time we like shared a meal together. He went in the hospital so, the next day. So when you agreed to go home, you didn't realize how sick he was. No, <clears throat> no. You had no. You didn't. You didn't have like an idea that that was the case, or did you just think, "Hey, he's kind of coming around, trying to make some changes"? Um, I was sort of taken aback by it that that the gesture of going home. Um, and I knew he was sick. I didn't quite know the extent of it. And my mom, yeah, yeah. And I think my mom later, and you know, later years later, I asked mom about it, and she said, "Oh, we just didn't want you to worry." <laughs> yeah. What a uh, what. 
what was the relationship with your sister like in your because i feel as though siblings a lot of times in that situation could potentially remain close and then that would affect you know your sister's relationship with your parents uh yeah um well my sister so i i have two sisters one is much older than me so um she's um hasn't been as much of a part of my life um but the sister who died actually was um had cerebral palsy uh so she was uh disabled her whole life and it was uh kind of a rare form of it that got degeneratively worse so the first 10 years of her life she was sort of functioning and then the last 15 years of her life she was not so i think there was like an added layer of trauma with my parents that just um between losing their daughter and then me coming out I think it was kind of just like their heads exploded and, and they kind of shut down, um, which, you know, it's a part of the book is my journey in forgiving them and understanding why and how that all came to be. Did, did your mom try and keep things together at all? Or was it like, Hey, yeah, just, I'm not going to intervene at this point. Yeah. Mom was the, um, really the intermediary. A lot of the time she was kind of the one, um, sort of trying to bring dad and I together. Like even in the hospital, right before I left to come back to New York, and dad was like, oh, I left some stuff for you in the garage. And I was like, oh, I'll come back and get it at Christmas. Um, I'm going to be back in two weeks. And my mom was like, honey, go put it in your car right now. Like, don't leave without taking that stuff. Yeah. Just listen to me. And I didn't. I was like, oh, no, I'll come back. I'll get it at Christmas. And um but mom was always kind of there, like running undercurrent, trying to get us, trying to bridge that gap between us. Um, and you said you came out and you were 22. Yeah. <laughs> did did you did you feel that your mom had an idea of that before you came out? Um, maybe. Although it's hard to say. Um, yeah. <laughs> and she's never really said either. Uh, honestly, like, I mean, where I grew up is. I don't know if you've been to South Dakota. Have not. No. Okay. It's, on, it's top on my list. <laughs> well, I mean, I didn't see a black person until I went to college. Yeah. I didn't meet a gay person until I went to college. Like I grew up on a cat. We had 10,000 acres of land and it was in Western South Dakota. And the closest town um, was about 60 miles away. Um, and, there was a study done that said we were the most remote place in the United States because we were 146 miles from the nearest McDonald's. Um, but it was tr- I went to a one-room schoolhouse with um, eight students um, wow. close to the Standing Rock Sioux Indian Reservation. Like, we didn't have – we had, like, one TV channel. Um, I mean, my upbringing was so isolated that for you to say, like, did your mom think you were gay? Like, we didn't hear or know what the word gay was. Yeah. <laughs> like. There was no, this was like the 80s and 90s in the middle of absolute no, nothing, nowhere. And um, is, when do you think you realized this? Oh, when I was like probably eight, you seven see, or eight. You knew yeah. and it was just like nothing that you understood. Nobody talked about it. Yeah. Um, which I, is, it's, yeah. it's funny that you say that because I think that was, where where I'm from, that was the generation before mine. You know, my parents and stuff said that growing up, you know, it was more sheltered than that, and they didn't talk about it, and it didn't come out until 
until years later that people started addressing it or understanding it. It was still kind of kept hush at yeah. that point. Um, it it wasn't like that's nothing I grew up with. Um, yeah. We've always been familiar with that and understood that. But it seems like you guys are kind of a generation behind. Yeah, I think so. The Midwest, South Dakota, it's like we were not of the same modern America that a lot of others were, I think. And it was in part because of the isolation and in part, I think, because of their religion. Yeah. Um, and that taught them that it was an abomination, basically, and something to not ever talk about. So So you, you left to go to school. Yes. Where, where did you go to school? Yeah, I went to undergrad at Iowa State University um, and then Cornell University for my master's and PhD. And I thought at the time that Iowa State was like the biggest city in the world. <laughs> I'm like, I'm free. oh, my God, I'm free. Like, there's so many people here. <laughs> um, yeah, it was really freeing and I had to I had to get out. Um, and that's an, a big part of I think a lot of people have written to me after reading my book and even people that grew up in New York City say that like you know i really related to the fact that you wanted to get out of where you were and i grew up on the upper east side of manhattan and i still wanted to get out and go somewhere else you know and that's sort of um sort of a big theme in my book is like getting out on the road and making something of yourself when you got to new york is that did you stay there i did yeah i never left uh i just love new york so much <laughs> i came in 99 for graduate school i worked a temp job for a year at goldman sachs on wall street hated it but it was exciting because I was like in a skyscraper, right. you know, like my office was on the 38th floor and I was like, they paid for my lunch. It was thrilling. <laughs> like, oh my God, there's a salad bar. Like, wow. Uh, but yeah, and I and then I went to grad school at Cornell and and I never left. And I uh, uh, I wrote my thesis about, about wine, about New York wine and, and um, sent a copy to the vineyard owners in New York State and ended up getting a job at this particular one been here ever since so you got into wine right out of school yeah you know i i got in i always studied botany and i came into wine sorry, from sorry. an agricultural perspective um plant okay. biology so um horticulture like gardening okay. plants farming that kind of stuff and that and, was um, was that driven from your upbringing in south dakota yeah it was yeah it was yeah my um you know the first gift my my dad ever gave me like that i remember I think maybe my seventh or eighth birthday, he gave me a coffee can, like an old Folgers coffee can filled with garden seeds. And he had tilled up an acre of land beside the house because when you have 10,000, like, okay, here's an acre for you. He was like, that's going to be your garden. And the can of garden seeds, they were all jumbled up and mixed up. And um, uh, it was my job to kind of like plant them and make sense of them and sort the seeds. But the first year, I just took them handfuls of them and threw them out and um, had a mess of a garden, but that's kind of what was my first impetus to study farming and plants. And uh, he gave me every year the same gift, a coffee can of seeds. And I learned how to sort them by size and color and shape and and what seeds grow up into different plants. Um, and then I ended up studying um, uh, grapes, grapevines at Cornell for grad school. So, yeah, I never really was that into wine, but I found a professor who had a grant to study wine and I thought, well, that sounds good. <laughs> So no, no desire to, no, it, it, you just fell into it. I fell into it. Yeah. Like I had an option to choose two thesis projects. One was, um, a study of, uh, tulips and the, the flower trade with, uh, 
the Netherlands, I guess. And the other one was to study wine. And they were just two grants that this one professor of agricultural business had available that semester. So I chose wine and it just, that was it. <laughs> so, so in study, so I'm getting in the weeds here, but that's okay. That's all right. In studying, in studying wine, what was it, what was so interesting to, about it? Um, so the most fascinating part about wine, which I can geek out on a little bit with you guys, I think is that the grape has 400 constituent aroma molecules in its skin. And it possesses the aroma molecules of most other fruits and foods. So like, for example, if you crush up a bunch of strawberries, they will smell like strawberries. If you crush up a bunch of bananas, they smell like bananas because they have just the banana aroma molecule in them. But grapes have the aroma molecules of strawberries and bananas in them and blueberries and blackberries and chocolate and whatever. So when you ferment grapes, it releases like all these different aromas. And it's kind of like, it's this microcosm of the entire biological world and this magical little thing. So I found it endlessly fascinating. Um, it's just the sort of constituency of all these mo like these molecules like mushed up together with alcohol and water. I didn't realize glass. that. Um, so, Kit, yeah. So after studying wine, do you have uh, um, like a greater comprehension of can you pick apart a lot of that stuff and kind of pull that out? What, what are those people called? Sommeliers? Um, yeah. Like that that I stuff can. blows yeah. my mind where somebody eats something or drinks, some, drinks something. They're like, yeah, I'm really picking up nutty undertones. And I'm like, yeah, it just tastes yeah. like the food to me. My, my favorite uh, that I have heard is someone took a, a sip of it and they were like, you know what? I'm really getting like a wet cardboard taste. Mm. And I remember drinking it and I'm like, that's exactly what this tastes like is wet cardboard but i would never i wouldn't have picked up on that or like related it and it's always you know part of me like definitely thinks half of it's bullshit but the other part of me is oh. like when, when i when i really listen it's like some people like to know that there's that many uh aroma aroma molecules is that what it yeah is? yeah you know in in that and the fact that there is different you know um yeah you know I guess flavors and aromas within that one grape. It, now that makes a little bit more sense to me in the sense that, you know, that's why all wine doesn't taste the same. Well, yes. And I was going to, I was just Googling to make sure I got the reference right. But um, the wet cardboard is actually an aroma. It's a specific compound and it's related to cork taint. So sometimes there's this TCH molecule in corks. And if it, it somehow spoils the wine after a certain amount of time because it leaves the cork and transmutes into the liquid. Mm. I think it's called TCH, it's but TCH anyway. TCH is stuff in weed that gets you high? No, it's yeah. THC. Maybe that is. THC. Maybe it's something else. <laughs> THC. Oh, TCA. Sorry, TCA, um, which is trichloroanisole. Okay. So that's the molecule responsible for wet cardboard and wet newspaper smell. So every smell is just like a little compound, right? So you smelling that is actually, that meant that that, that wine was technically spoiled. Um, but yeah, I can um, I can get all those aromas and things, but in, in a sense, like I know too much about wine to mm -hmm. enjoy it that much anymore because it's all so reductive to me now. I'm like, oh yeah, hmm, that smells like trichloroanisole. <laughs> yeah, we have a, we have a friend um, whose sibling was in like the culinary industry and i think it's her husband now they just like happen to realize how 
he could taste and kind of um, pick up all of these like differentiations between different wines and grapes and where they come from, but he had no idea. And somehow in school, they realized this and like, that's what he does for a living now. But like, wow. it, it was nothing. He wasn't formally trained initially and they realized this. And now he's like, makes a full time living doing that. Um, and obviously you get trained in it at that point and all, I'm sure certified and all that stuff. But it, like, that's something where somebody's born with that more so than somebody yeah. learning about that and understanding the, you know, biology behind, right. um, <clears throat> what's making the wine. And he can pinpoint a moment when they realized that, right? Yeah. Like yeah, it, right. And it, it okay. was, it was basically like, okay, let's exploit this. Now we realized yeah. that, but he had no idea his entire life that he could do that. And he's just like some sort of, you know, um, like just unique situation where, Hey, this is what you, like you have a God given ability to do this. Um, and so it took like mm -hmm. very little polishing to get him at the top of his game. Wow. So I have this theory about life and this will relate to Nick and, and I think your, your career. And I think the subject of your podcast often is how people work and get sort of move forward in their, their lives as builders. Um, I have this divining rod theory where if you trace back like your friend to the moment that they realized that they could smell things great, that was a moment that changed their life, the direction of their life, but they probably didn't realize it. And maybe until years later that that was like the why, like the place where everything changed. And like the story I just told you about grad school, I sat down, I remember the day when I sat down with that professor and was like, all right, what should I do for my thesis? And he said, you can choose tulips or wine. All right, I'll take wine. And now look like my entire life has gone on that trajectory. And I always encourage people whether they're developing a business plan or they're figuring out like, what am I passionate about? What do I want to, what do I want to do in life and where am I going? Like, and before you think about where you're going in the forward direction, look back to where you came in the in sort of reverse direction. And I like to find these sort of um, these moments where I didn't know it then, but looking back, I'm like, Oh yeah, that was the day that I um, did X, Y, Z. And that changed the course of my life forever. Um, it's a fun exercise and I've done, I've done it on paper too, before where I draw like evolutionary trees almost. Um, and a recent one was I had an actor named Matt Bomer read the audiobook of my book and he's won a golden globe. He's been in a few movies like, um, oh gosh, magic Mike. And he has a show called white collar and a show called the sinner on Netflix. And anyway, everyone asks, like you didn't read the audiobook yourself, but you had this like Hollywood celebrity read it like how on earth did you um come to the place in life where you had matt bomer read your audiobook and so i had to do the divining rod exercise like oh well there was this person i met this person and we have a common friend named steve and i met steve at a another friend genevieve you know genevieve gorder who's on hgtv mm -hmm. i met steve at her wedding in morocco and how did I meet Genevieve? Well, I met her because I dated her best friend, John Gidding, who's also on HGTV years before that. Well, how did I meet John Gidding? Because he saw one of my canoe videos that went viral on Instagram. <laughs> and how did I start putting canoe videos on Instagram? Because my dad gave me his toolbox. <laughs> That's crazy. And so like, 
that's the base reason why I had Matt Bomer read my audiobook. If you really peel back all the layers, I think we can all do that in all aspects of our life. So if you went the tulip route, you'd be sorting bulbs and (laughs) building vintage motorcycles. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Flowers and motorcycles. That's that's pretty (laughs) I think that'd be great. Maybe that's my second career. It's it's interesting. And I think you're absolutely right is that we need to oftentimes reflect on, you know, where we, where we've come from and, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's even, you know, I catch myself doing it where, you know, I'm so focused on getting to a point in my life that I think will be the, the time that I can spend more time at home or I can take more vacation or, you know, I just need to build this house and prove that the proof of concept works so I can then change the course of my career. But it's like, well, mm-hmm. hold on a second. Like, what about everything that you've done? And I'm speaking to myself, like the last seven years, like look mm-hmm. at seven years ago, it was just yeah. me. And now we've, I've built this company mm-hmm. and now I have a team of people that, you know, are, were, and we all share this similar mindset and it's, it's important yeah. to reflect and it's, you know, oftentimes like you hear people say, don't look back, keep looking forward. And, and that's, that is true. Like you want to keep forward momentum, but I think appreciating how you got to that that current moment is important. A hundred percent. And there's always lessons in that history. And a big my book is structured with flashbacks. So I'll be working on the canoe in real time, cutting wood, gluing things. And then I'm using a tool of dad's and I'll have a flashback in the book of the last time I remember dad mm-hmm. using that tool or a lesson that I learned from dad that was important for how I could build about it all. And one of those main lessons was a uh, little and often makes much. And, you know, there's a lot of cliches like Rome wasn't built in a day and whatever, and um, don't bite off more than you can chew. But I learned um, through reflecting on the past, not by imagining what my future could be. Because any future we imagine is actually just made up in our heads. We can manifest it and we can hope and dream, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, so the lessons haven't been learned yet. Um, but the stuff that has happened to us in the past, we can really dissect and we can really learn and study ourselves in a way. Um, I did a launch night Zoom with Nick Offerman for my book, and he's such a nice guy. He's so awesome, and he's been so generous at helping me launch my book. And there was a moment when we were split screening to a couple thousand people on Zoom, and I <laughs> I took like a screen image, a screen capture, because I was just like, how did, what series of decisions happened in my life that ended up with me now here on this Zoom call with Nick Offerman launching my book? (laughs) Like, it's good to just take stock of like, wow, okay. You know, I also like, in in, in no way diminishing that moment, but I I do think that people forget that, you know, we are all human. Like even even Nick yeah. Offerman, you know, as crazy as I think, like mm-hmm. I've, I've seen him in. Um, gosh, I forget the play that he 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 was in. He came to Boston. Well, if you said it, I would know. But it's um, he's just a wildly talented person that has went on to become yeah. uber successful at what he does. And it's you know, and there you know, my my point is is that these people are within reach. 
and and they want to yeah. support the next person that is you know doing great things such as yourself and that's likely why you know he hopped on board to help support it and and, and split screen with you yeah you know it's it, it but yeah. it is it's it, it's yeah. it's very important to to like you said take inventory of what decisions that you've made and really just you know yeah. again focused on what mattered to you right well I always talk about my past self taking care of my current self. And there are, t you know, not everything I did in my 20s was great. Okay. Like I was kind of a dipshit for a few years, for, a man, for many years. That's what your 20s <laughs> is about, to be honest. Right. <laughs> and, um, and then I always, th I worry about like, oh, am I doing the right thing? Am I setting myself up for success? Like, should I be doing more? And I think I turned out I'm fine right now. So clearly my past self made enough decent decisions to put my current self in an okay place. So I'm learning to trust my current self to make the right decisions to help my future self be all right in this world. Um, and that goes for business development and personal things as well. So I want, I want to bring this conversation backwards again. So going back to the canoes and getting commissioned, you know, you, well, you're in the Wall Street Journal as the first, the guy with the hundred thousand dollar canoe, and from that point, you you went on to be in Esquire magazine and all of these other magazines. At at this point, all of this has just been a buzz around Instagram, right? Because you decided to document, mm -hmm. you know, this canoe that you were building, and someone caught wind of it and said, right. "Hey, I want to I want to showcase this." The Wall Street <clears throat> Journal, and then it just kind of spiraled from there. Right. At that. Yes, at, until at, recently. What do you mean by that? Oh, well, no, keep going. I think I shouldn't jump ahead. Tell oh, you're talking about from the media <laughs> side of it. I'm, so, no, I'm talking yeah, from the media so side of things. From there, you know, you are working at this winery. You decide to build that canoe, and then you're going to – now you get commissioned for – is this the one that went, ends up in Switzerland? Uh, that was the first one, yeah. And then there was one in the Hamptons right afterwards. And, so I, re I remember yes, specifically yeah, the, the one in one. Switzerland. And I just remember the, you know, the book is little and often. And I thought about that as watching, you know, it was always these micro steps that you took and which is why it takes 12 months. Yeah. But it's like, you know, you, you talk yeah. about, you, you mentioned earlier that if you understood what went into building a boat, you probably wouldn't have done it. Because it's a daunting task, right? And you know, oh, yeah. and you make a reference to Christmas, totally. and my my, you know, me and my wife always talk about how we like to get a boat at some point. And I look at Chris Crafts, and she's uh -huh. like, "No, you're just all you're going to do is be re restoring that thing." And, I'm, and I look at it, and I'm like, "She's not wrong, but it's just so beautiful." And it's like, you know, and she's like, "I want to actually <laughs> enjoy it. Like, I want the kids to actually be able to go on it." But yeah. the to go back, it's, you know, this, this year long process of just putting these micro steps together. And I think that right there yeah. is what has, you know, in my opinion, why it was so interesting to follow is because you, you were seeing what it took piece by piece. And it wasn't this overwhelming, like, Hey, I got to get yes. the whole side done today. You would, you know, well, and who knows, I'm right. watching a, a 15 second clip on, on Instagram. Uh, right. where everyone's asking where you got your blue boots, but you know, the, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, it is. And it's so, it's so I, I caught wind of it and I would always ask you, I'm like, where'd you get the blue boots? Um, 
but it would be this 15 second <laughs> clip of you adding like maybe you know a half a dozen pieces and you know and the my takeaway sure. from that was no yeah. this is this is how it's put together it's not you you don't go into this trying yeah. to fly through it this is you know, much different right incremental steps are the only way anything extraordinary has ever happened in my life and building a boat one strip at a time you put on one strip you let the glue dry and you come back the next day you put on another strip sometimes these boats require up mm -hmm. to like 80 to 100 strips so you could be in this for three months just laying them down and then you've got to sand it and then you've got to put on the fiberglass and uh you know it's funny a lot of guys now in this so-called so content creation world are making youtube videos every week um and banging out projects because they have to have something that they can show a mm -hmm. beginning, middle, and end on a YouTube video. So I'm not knocking those guys. They're all my friends. I get it. Um, but the emphasis is so much right. on the finished product and on like getting something done so you can compress it into a video that will get you clicks on YouTube and make you ad revenue. And boat building could not be uh, more diff you know opposite from that. Like. <laughs> Um, and like you said, when people follow me for a long time and then they see me putting down a, one strip and gluing it and they follow that for a year and then they finally see it in the water for the first time, they're like, right. whoa, oh yeah, now I get it. Like this really beautiful thing happened because of all these incremental steps. And I, I've been fortunate in that my Instagram's gotten quite a bit of following even without having a lot of finished product to show people. Um, and that lesson... Um, obviously it's the core of my book. Um, but I, that whole thing started really with my father. When I was a teenager, I had a summer job scraping paint off of a brick barn in South Dakota. And it was like blazing hot and it was this white barn and, and like the paint was peeling and I had like a wire brush and it was a part-time job for some old man and whatever. And I was completely daunted, totally overwhelmed, because the whole idea seemed totally impossible that I could ever scrape the paint off this giant barn. And um, my dad came with me to the job site one day and just said, like, your head's getting in the way because you're overwhelmed. You're just thinking about how am I going to scrape this barn? And he said, but what you really need to worry about is how you're going to scrape this brick. And he took the wire brush out of my hand and he scraped the one brick. And then he gave me the brush back. I get emotional telling this story. He gave me the brush back, and then I scraped the next brick. Uh, and we alternated bricks until we had finished, like, a whole row of the barn. Um, and he said, you know, this is only going to happen brick by brick. And if you try to do it any other way, you're going to fail. Um, and so that's where the title of the book came from, doing things little and often. And eventually you can look back and realize mm -hmm. that, wow, I did a big thing. And... Back then, it was high school, and I was scraping. I, I scraped paint off the bricks, and I had enough money to buy my first car, which is what I drove to college at Iowa State, which right. was like how I got out. Do you <laughs> relate that to what you deal with in New York or just the mentality around New York? Because I feel, you know, everyone is looking for how do I, how do I get a bigger brush to scrape 100 bricks at a time, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's gosh. I think it's a particular quality of Americans, maybe that everything has to be bigger, faster, better. And especially in business and in MBA programs, they teach us like, well, how are you going to monetize that? And how are you going to scale that? And, and 
people are never satisfied, it seems, with just, what if I don't scale it up? What if I don't monetize it? What if I just have enough for myself? And that is total, for me, that's, that's the definition of sustainability. And I feel like sometimes we're doing this like highline act where we're trying to like find the next big hot thing. And, um, you know, I've had people come to me with venture capitalists come to me with ideas to blow out my canoe business. And, you know, we'll give you all this money and you'll get a brand new building. You'll get 20 employees and we'll build 50 of these canoes a year. And I'm just like, or <laughs> I could build one right. a year and have a perfectly fine life and enjoy you know, doing it myself with my own bank hands. that I wasn't going to make because I was probably just going to be watching Netflix anyway. You right. know, but, but, yeah. <laughs> and I think that a lot of that is societal pressure. That's, it's so common. Everyone wants to under, you know, the, you're in business to make money and that's it. And you need to find a way to not work, to make money or work less to make money where, especially right. when something's a passion project or you're looking to be able to donate time to certain causes, I think it's so important to maintain the authenticity of what you're doing and why you started it in the first place rather than kind of uh, go the business route. And I think that while you may not make a million dollars a year doing that, you may be happier and you probably are happier maintaining what you're doing now than kind of chasing that dollar. But, but every, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know so. if it's access to everybody or everyone putting out on Instagram or social media, you know, that they got a new car, they have this, they have that, or, you know, that people just think they, they need to make millions and millions of dollars a year to be happy that, it doesn't need to be that way. You don't need to have a dozen employees. You don't need to have a new building. You can get by with all that stuff and have a, a good, happy, comfortable lifestyle, just kind of doing what you're doing and enjoying yourself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I often think about it in these terms of like worrying about my homestead and I'm not ever going to be the guy that needs planes and seven houses and yachts. Like, I don't care. To me, it's all just more headaches. And I, my homestead is taken care of record, so I can pay my mortgage and feed my dogs. And, so do you want at least one plane and yeah. one yacht? <laughs> He's... <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes, you know, it's like life sure would be easy with a whole bunch of money, but I don't, I, <laughs> maybe not. If, if you find... <laughs> For me, you look at what you're doing right now, and if, if building one canoe a year truly is something that you are enjoying, are you going to enjoy having 20 employees and, you know, that there's a shortage on this material, or this didn't come out the way that I wanted to, or this customer's unhappy, and now something right. that you find such peace in and joy in, and you make a tiny bit of money on at the end of the day, you took all of that away. And it's for what? So, so, so you can right. buy something else that complicates your life or you think that you're going to have a little bit more financial freedom, but you just took away something that makes you happy, which at the end of the day, people think that financial freedom is the thing that's right. going to make them happy. Um, it's, mm. yeah, <laughs> I have another, yes, I, 
I have an example in the wine business too. When I first got into studying grapes and wine, I was super passionate about it. And then the longer you work in a company and the higher up you get, the less and less I, I dealt with, with wine. And now basically being CEO, I sign, I sign checks and fire people. I mean, like my job is so far removed from wine and winemaking now. I still love it here, but it's no longer personal and no longer a passion project because now it's a, a business, a bigger business. And it's been part of my uh, desire to, to stick with just doing one canoe a year is that it it's still finally something that I can do by myself for myself. And I'm happy enough with having all of that, you know, within my control and it's right where I want it to be. Maybe some... Sorry, go ahead. What would be, you know, you mentioned that the winery is for sale. Yeah. So if it were to sell, what what is what does that look like for you? Oh, gosh, that's the question of the year for me. It's a tough one. Uh, I've been um, I've been pondering that for a while. It de- in some ways, it depends on who the new owner is. Um, if it's a really interesting person who, let's say, owns vineyards in other parts of the world, or if it's a celebrity or something where I could have like a link to the other parts of their life, um, maybe I would stay on and work for them. But I've built this company myself over the last uh, 20 years. I'm, I designed the building. I've hired all the employees, um, designed the labels. Like this is essentially my business that I built with the owner's Sounds uh, nice. wealth. And so I feel really fortunate. <laughs> it was a, it's a, been a great run. I have to say, like I will never have another a better job in the wine business. So this is definitely going to be it for me in the wine business, whether I stay here forever or move on to something else. It'd be nice if maybe there was a new owner and I could be, a, you know, an equity partner for them, uh, since I did build the place, um, and I know where every body's buried, um, <laughs> uh, so to speak. The other avenue that everyone keeps encouraging me is like, well, why don't you build boats and write books full time and just, you know, you won't have a day job. And that's, um, that's scary to me. I haven't quite wrapped my head around yet uh, how that would work um, for me. I know I could do it at least in the short term. I've got another boat commission and I could come up with another idea for a book probably, but um, (laughs) we'll see. Those aren't certain things. I've always been my parents' uh, cattle ranch ended up going bankrupt in the in the early 90s because it didn't rain for three years, basically. It was like, well, the, um, the farm crisis was precipitated by drought and also by the grain embargo against the Soviet Union. And so I still have that little inkling of doubt in me that, well, what if it doesn't rain for three years? Like, what if I don't get a boat commission for three years? Then what the hell do I do? Um, yeah, but I, you know, in... I say it a lot on this podcast, and I feel like it's fitting. We're we're talking about kind of stemming from your dad. My dad, I always say he gave me the best and worst piece of advice. Anytime I I thought of something like that, it's like what yeah. you know. And when I started my own company, I'm like, what if I don't have any work? You know, you'll figure it out. Right. And it's like I remember, you know, we just bought a house yeah. and we just got married, and my I found out my wife's pregnant. I'm like, Dad, I just I don't have any work. I, I I'm renovating. The, yeah, you'll figure it out. Wow, and I'm and, he's right, and I, he is, and and to think, yeah. you know, to think now back to then, like I was so frustrated with him. I'm like, sure. you're not. I'm calling you because I need help. I'm calling you <laughs> where you're going to tell me like, no, if you do this, you'll be okay. And mm. now, you know, fast forward, it's like, no, he. I mean, whether he was just 
getting the easy the easy answer out and kind of just you know so he could I leave him alone or what <laughs> it, it it worked and you know and right. I, you know I I would pass that same advice along to you it's like I think yeah. about you know from what I know of you you know obviously the winery being your full time business the the canoes I think there's you you've approached this in a way where you've built a, a brand around yourself more than just what you do on a daily basis. Yeah. I mean, you could, yeah. you could do Shisugiban fences for, for, <laughs> for a living. It's true. I could, I could just run down to the Hamptons with a flamethrower. You'd be, a, you'd be a, the only guy in the Hamptons with a flamethrower <laughs> using it for non-recreational purposes. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's not a bad idea. Actually I'll have a, bucket of tongue oil in my left hand and a flamethrower <laughs> in my right hand and just burn fences. Um, you're right. I'll figure it out. I'm sure necessity is the mother of invention. And I've been through, you know, obviously more difficult times before and I figured it out. So yeah, I'm, um, did we, did we talk kind of, about, uh, you, you kind of, I feel like you just kind of glazed over the fact that you built this, this business, the wine business with the owner's wealth. I, I guess yes. I had originally thought, that this was his company and that you came into it? Um, so he uh, bought an existing vineyard in 2000 that had been founded in 1980 by an, another person. Mm -hmm. And when he bought it, it was kind of in disrepair and was not like a modern, um, you know, world-class kind of winery. And so he brought me in after grad school at Cornell to, to run it and rebuild it. And we renovated everything. We have 10,000 square foot um, winemaking facility now. We have the largest wedding and events venue on Eastern Long Island. Um, we did a lot of construction projects and then we hired the best people and all of that takes money. Um, and he, he, his interest was primarily in just making the best wine possible that we could on the East Coast. And he kind of turned me loose with a great team of people and, and his bank account to, to make it perfect like he just wanted a beautiful beautiful winery and that was and, it there was no and obviously we're we're summarizing here but that the everything was revolved around making the best wine it yes. wasn't hey you always have, about you quality have, how long did it take before you guys started no. making money assuming you're now making money being that it's selling for 20 million um i don't know how much oh, i can reveal publicly but uh the winer, wine business is not necessarily one where anyone gets into it interested in or expecting to make boatloads of cash. Yeah. It's a huge game of asset accumulation. You know, we've got 100 acres of land that are highly valuable because the vineyards are top notch and the brand is very strong and we sell out of our wines to New York City restaurants. So often wineries are generational prospects in, in, in France and Spain and places where wineries have been around forever. They take generations to make money. Um, it took us about 20 years and we just started making money basically in the pandemic is when things kind of turned around for us. We were, but forced... you were building equity the entire time. Oh yeah, absolutely. Major, major equity. Um, yeah. And, uh, uh, Nick, you were saying something right just a second ago and I wanted to pick up on that, but now I'm blanking on what that was. I was um, just thinking about how sweet it would be to work for somebody where they're like, you know what? I don't really care if you're turning a profit on this, just make it really cool. Well, I think, I mean, yeah. And this I, is going to be your career. And here's my check. I think this is like the, yeah. you know, I, I would want to say this is like the center of this whole conversation is that, 
you know, the canoe it was the same thing. It's like you're gonna, you know, you're gonna put an enormous amount of time and effort into it. You're gonna use these crystal compasses, you know, stuff, you know, mm-hmm. because you want to build the best. And it's, you know, that's something that back. going back to what I was talking about with homes. It's, I don't, I don't want to build this spec to make money. I want to build this spec to 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 fulfill a passion of mine. You know, and right. but you have to you have to find the right yeah. person there, and it has to be somebody who is passionate, a thousand percent, or has that drive. Because if there's not this, like if you if if I took my business right and I didn't have if I had complete financial security, where there weren't fear of not making money, fear of not being successful, where you know it's like, hey, we can't afford life, or we have to sell our house, we have to claim bankruptcy, I. Like, I think that so much that's a driving factor that if I didn't have any of that or I was absolved of all my financial, um, basically any, like any responsibilities that I have, would you be as driven to be successful, um, if that weren't there? So I, it definitely takes a, 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 a a special person to not have that scarcity, but, uh, that fear, that anxiety, and still become very successful or create something. Yeah. yeah. I mean, cause you're absolutely right where it's, you know, every, you know, there, there's having, having someone that is passionate about doing the very best and having someone be able to actually financially fund that and then pairing them together. Right. That's a win-win where oftentimes, at least from the stories I hear, you know, it's someone that does have the financial resources partnering with someone that doesn't give a shit. And, yes. Yeah. That's a more right. common and story. <laughs> and that's incredibly frustrating where it's like, well, if he just met me and I could give him my story and, you know, and not, you know, it just, I, I think yeah. that that's what I'm getting at is like the center of this whole conversation is about, you know, no matter what the circumstances you're approaching it with the end result in mind being the very best product. And I think, right. You know, absolutely. The way you, you kind of answered Tyler's question about profitability, you know, I feel, and maybe I'm uncovering something here is that you answered it in the way of, well, the winery, the wine wasn't something that you get into for, you know, necessarily the profit, but you, you talked about having an event space. Is that is that really yeah. kind of a separate business? Because I, um, no, it's part of this one, and I, I would say that quality has been our only motivator for for the last twenty years. And every decision we make is about making the best wine we can and protecting our brand. Um, so we don't do things that will kind of sully our brand or put us in association with lesser quality wines or in accounts that, you know, like dive bars don't serve our wine, right? And a lot of that's driven by price. So you have to price your wines or your canoes or your homes at a level that you attract the type of buyer that you want to attract. But for me, having the owner's kind of financial backing was liberating because I had always wanted to sort of, I, I, how do I say this? Um, I'm motivated by the opportunity to make things crazy good. I'm not motivated by volume or, or mm. quantity or churning things out, like making the donuts. Uh, I have no interest in that at all. I mean, I grew up on a, on a huge ranch where my dad was like planting oats and wheat and alfalfa. And we had like 5,000 head of cattle. And it was like, 
it's like feed, the, the phrase in farming is it's like feeding hay, uh, straw to a horse because straw has like no nutritional value whatsoever. And you could feed a horse a whole bale of straw a day and it could starve to death um, because it's just like hollow and meaningless. And um, I'm just not interested in that way of life or business at all. So when we built the winery, um, built it back up and we finally got the wines to a quality level where we wanted them to be. I also realized that we needed, we did need more cash flow, and we didn't really have a space to do. We had a small tasting room, but we didn't have a space for people to do grand scale events. So we built a 4,000 square foot pavil covered pavilion, and it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, we charge $25,000 for weddings, and that doesn't include anything. It's just the site fee alone, and um, and we're sold out. I mean, we're booked out through 2022. We do like we have like 38 weddings this summer. And uh, it allows us to showcase right. our wines, and it's all also about quality. I mean, you should see the all of our weddings are like in Martha Stewart magazine, and like these are just over the top gorgeous but weddings. And people don't realize how yeah. difficult it is to make money just by having the mentality of we're all, we're going to settle for nothing, right? Like when your your primary yeah. focus is quality. It costs so much money and it takes so much time yeah. to do that, that you're not going to make money in the first two years. You're not going to make money in the first five years, 10. It's going to take so long when you truly yeah. will will settle for nothing but your best. You're not going to make a lot of money. It's going to take, and it, eventually you will, but it's going to take so long. There's so many easier ways like mediocrity to make money mm -hmm. it's oh, yeah. so hard to make yeah. money when you're like i want this to be the best because that right. that 90 you got to 95 percent right and when most people say that's good enough that extra five percent takes just as long as it took to get from zero to 95 and that's where all the money oh, goes. Yeah. that's where all the time goes yeah absolutely now you're right and i feel like i've been in a really fortunate position in life to be able to do that like i'm I don't want to sort of treat it like flippantly, like, oh, yeah, we could focus on quality because the owner was a really rich movie producer. Like, I know that to some people that might sound, um, I don't know what even the word is, but annoying. <laughs> um, but, you know, opportunity meets um, passion and preparedness, right? So, like, I was put in this position to do it and work with a guy who had the resources and, I'm, and I could make it happen. And... Um, you know, maybe someone else is in a position where they can't do that and they have to make money and can't always do the best quality. But I think the, but, you know, I think that the, there's, this conversation can be related to so much. And, you know, we talk about social media and you, you, you mentioned how some of these makers are, you know, driven by the fact that they have to have this beginning, middle and end. And you think about HGTV where it's like, if the mm -hmm. show doesn't show the end reveal, then what's the point of the show? And, you know, and it's, you know, right. and obviously, you know, we film everything we do and we did this long series video where it was right before the pandemic and we weren't, it, it was just a vanity. It was like this pilot we were going to do about how to build a vanity start to finish. And we couldn't install the vanity mm -hmm. because we got, the job got shut down and we were like, you know what, oh, Let's shit. Just, you know, <laughs> whatever, we'll just, we'll put the video up and we'll see how it does. And then everyone was like. I mean, the video was great, except the fact that we never saw, saw it done. 
And, you know, in, in, yeah. in touching on something here today is that, you know, that's what that's the way we're 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 tra- trained to think about these things is that you need to move quick through them and yeah. and deliver a final product and it's you know almost the hurry up finish it we'll fix it later mentality where the the, the quite the opposite right. is you know and like tyler said it's incredibly expensive to do it this way but the you know the the what it f- is it's so much more fulfilling to approach something with no, I'm going mm-hmm. you know at any cost. This we're going to put out the very very best. Right, I think that's an interesting example you gave because I don't know if it's a particularly American trait or what, but we are afflicted with a burden yeah. of expectation yeah. on the outcome of everything. Like oh, you might have had a great process video for making that vanity. But just because right. like you didn't install it at the end, like right. it sucked all of a sudden and people didn't like it or that's what it's everyone just, takes away from it. The U.S. is, you know, like it's uh, so fast paced and everything is, you know, how fast yeah. can something be done? You know, I think about how, you know, over, the, you know, Europe shuts down for all of August. It's like, you know, and that's just yeah. normal. And over here, it's like yeah. you ask for a week off, right. and your boss is like, "You sh- are you shitting me?" It's like this is the busiest time, you know. It's, it's summertime, and you know, I think yeah. I even think yeah. about Doug, who does all our videos in house. You know, I've talked to him. I'm like, I'm so sick of watching. You know, going back to videos, of videos where it's quick cuts, just everything is like snap, 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 real fast music. I'm right, like, slow the fuck down. And I'm like, I'm watching a video from mm-hmm. you know Europe or Australia where it's like, no, there's it's slow, it's sexy, it's methodical. It's like, hey, I want you to appreciate yeah. this. Here, here it is for a couple seconds. Right. Yeah. The the quick cut stuff. It's like the HGTV, yes. and I almost think I'm gonna have a seizure sometimes. They're like, oh my god, and then we redid this bathroom, and the screen the screen flashes, and then and we put in a new mirror, and the screen flashes, and I'm just like. Literally, it's like watching a, right. like a mirror ball at a disco because I can't focus on any one thing. It drives me bonkers. Like slow down. I want to see how you put the mirror in. Yeah. They do the same thing on the Food Network with all these competition reality show cooking shows where they're like, now I'm going to mix in the eggs. And it's just like the camera, it's all manic. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's, it's a representation of our culture. But I will tell you, there's only like one or maybe two cooking shows that I, that I watch I'm not big into watching home shows, but there's two slow cooking shows like um, that Lydia's Kitchen and then that one with um, Ina Garten and there's no camera cuts. And it's just like if she's going to beat an egg, they will show you like a minute of her beating an egg. And you're just like, oh, my God, this is so zen. Right. I love this. And the sound is all like, you know, what's that sound? Yeah. Um, ASMR when stuff sound. Yeah. It's just like puts me like in a zombie trance so i've tried to do some of that with some of my canoe videos like my glue ups i'll have no background music and i will just show me putting on one strip with a bead of glue right. and i'll clamp it and that's right. it and the the glue drips down and then the video ends <laughs> but it, it, it should be it should be about the process and that every for me it's not necessarily about the end result. I think that the end result is what you stumble upon it. And it's almost 
um, it's a given because if your process is that thorough and that in depth, the end result is going to be nothing short of all of those things, mm-hmm. you know, where you kind of have that, that synergistic, uh, result because of that. But for me, that, that's the entire content generation, everything else. If you were creating your content or your project based around what people are going to click on and what people are going to like, it just, it takes all of that authenticity out of it for me at that point. I don't, I don't care what it is. I don't care what the end result is. I don't care what your steps in getting there are. It, it, you're creating content and cultivating content basically to, um, Mm -hmm. hit as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. And for me that that's the exact opposite of what I want to be doing. Um, and what I want to see and what I want to kind of take in and, and I guess, kind of yeah like where you have like yeah what what i want to immerse myself in 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 daily life right um and it it's very apparent when people are creating content basically for somebody to like or you know to get as many views as possible and it it takes the art out of it it takes the process out of it and it's it's nothing that i really enjoy right yeah, and Instagram, YouTube algorithms have driven us to this place, mm-hmm. all the lemmings at the edge of the cliff, where, you know, some of my favorite videos are the ones that got, like, no views at all, basically. Yeah. And I know precisely how I could make a video that's going to get a half million right. views. Like, it's got to have a zippy camera transition in the first three seconds so that the person stays on the screen for at least three seconds. And then, like, I, yeah, I could go down the whole list. And sometime, once in a while, I'll do one of those videos and I'm just like, oh, right. okay. It's like it doesn't feel <laughs> as good. And that's, you know, it's funny. Doug and I, um, we talk all the time about the way we produce content. And, you know, we slip, we find ourselves slipping in and out of, man, we're just not getting any traction on YouTube to, you know, yeah. who cares? You know, let's just keep doing it. You know, right? But it is. It's it, it's it's um it's addicting in, in in a really poor, like unhealthy way. And you know, it is. And, and this and Doug yeah. and I had a conversation last week, and he's like, "I really, I really want to focus on the more theatrical stuff. We've been we've been just yeah. I've been so focused on creating three pieces of content a week for YouTube, where it's like my mm. you know he I, he doesn't want to plateau." And he wasn't even done with the sentence, like talking about it. I'm like, yes. I mean, we we have obviously slipped yeah. into that that mind game of like, how do we beat the algorithm? How do we get right. more content? How many? How do we get more eyeballs? Where it's like, right. at the end of the day, it's I don't need a hundred thousand people calling me for uh, to build a house. Right. I need I need like yeah. a couple, maybe a couple hundred in my lifetime. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. Well, it's a little like a Vegas slot machine, the Instagram, the algorithm. Like you're just like, well, one more pull. <laughs> oh, oh, maybe I'll hit it next time. Let me just pull it one more time. Oh, uh, I didn't – oh, it was two sevens that time. Um, but going back to the subject of quality, I mean this is exactly what you guys are doing. Now you've, you've established enough of a business with your home building that you can maybe take a step back with your content creation and say, well, we're not like desperate for the money and attention. So now let's be better. Let's make better quality content or slow it down and, and have it be more kind of sumptuous and not as manic. I think that's a great that's a great evolution. It's interesting to me also how 
people want to see the same crap. Like it, it has to fit a certain format, mm-hmm. um, a certain time timeline. It has to look a certain way. It has to start and end. Nobody wants to see anything unique anymore. Right. And it, it for me, I cruise Instagram. I'm like, all right, this is it's the same shit over and over, chewed up and then regurgitated out with somebody else's name on it. And I'm like, at yeah. what point is it going to be something new? And But that's what everyone wants, and it blows my mind. But even, even yeah. us, I, I mean, uh, I speak for myself where it's like I find myself stopping on the catchy stuff, and I watch the video. I'm like, I hate this. I hate the fact I just wa- yeah. I, I watched 17 other people do this exact same thing, and for whatever reason, I needed to see how this person did it. And and you're and it's funny, Trent, you're talking about like cooking shows. There's you know TikTok is like an absolute waste of time, and like I it's so oh bad. My, like my wife and I, it's it, we subconsciously like put the kids down together uh, to bed, sit down on the couch, thinking that we're gonna watch TV, and then next thing we know, we're like an hour deep on sharing TikToks. But there's this one, uh, there's this one guy terrible. that he does. He's like a, I think he does whiskey or something. And he takes a glass of whiskey, drinks it, slams it on the counter, and then he cooks. And he co- and he and he's and he okay. goes through it, and it's like this loop. So at the end of the video, like he basically picks up the cup, and it's like so you never know when the video stops, but it just replays. My point is, oh, okay. is when you're talking about that cooking show, I'm like I watch it, and I'm like salivating, like this food is so good. But I can't. I'm like, I, there's no right. way I can even figure out how to cook this because I can't keep up with what he's doing. I'm like, I, and, I, and I and I keep yeah. saving them, thinking like I'll go back and I'll like pay, and like I'll I'll pause it. You know, he pro- I I didn't even think he probably puts yeah. the instructions in the in the the words below. Maybe he does, but he doesn't care I, either. I'm sure he's just right? getting clicks and, it's and like, like. And I'm watching. You know, he made like, like pork bites yesterday. I'm like, I've never even had those, but those look delicious. <laughs> I'm like, I got. I, TikTok is a bottomless pit of the human condition. It's, I've never, it's astonishing. I've never been it's, on it. It's terrible. Oh my it's, god! It's so it, it's maybe terrible. don't. I don't think I you will. Know? I mean, it's borderline porn too. That, I mean, it's is... strange. Like all the dancing yeah, stuff. I mean, we 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 talked. I mean, not See, porn, that was but... the one draw for me. <laughs> <laughs> we we had a, a couple weeks ago uh, another guest that he talked a lot about. Um, you know, basically a downfall he had within himself, but with TikTok because of like you're you're without even you know getting you know without even selecting it you're just completely enamored by these chicks dancing and you know and just like you said borderline porn it's like this isn't what i need to be casually scrolling by when my daughter is watching blippy on the tv next to me it's like (laughs) i often think of these uh social media platforms like i think about what i want to get out of each of them so i only go now I go to Instagram and I've whittled down the people that I follow to basically people who I've met in person or who I know or who I have a real I have an interest in their work or their human or them as a human. Um, I go to YouTube when I want to know yeah. how to do something. And I go to TikTok if it's three in the morning and I can't <laughs> sleep. <laughs> and I'm just like, let's see how inane the human species right. can be. And I go to TikTok. Next thing you know, it's five thirty. It's like yourself. I didn't need to sleep. Yeah screw it exactly like oh, i better yeah. just start my day because it's five o'clock um and i'll go to facebook to find out like what my great aunt is doing in south dakota like because that's the only people that still use facebook right and to it's do. you know it's the same like instagram i find that's where my inspiration you know i'm able to kind of categorize my inspiration yeah. where it's 
you know, other builders, architecture, you know, like you said, you know, do I value someone as a human being like though that it's a great place for that. And obviously, I mean, the three of us, unfortunately, John's not on this right now, but you know, um, you know, the four of us, it's like, we've, we've built, you know, we've shaped our career over the last five plus years using mm. Instagram. You made it to the, you know, yeah. to the wall street journal, you know, shortly into it. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it's a, yeah. it's super powerful, but, again kind of going back to the center you know central focus here is that you know it's never wavered from you know i'm sure it has wavered in in times but it's like we try not to waver from putting out you know 100 percent effort towards quality yeah yeah i mean i i am very grateful for instagram i will never be cynical about it i've gained so many wonderful friends through instagram and i never in a million years would have known or met other canoe builders, boat builders, woodworkers, builders like yourself. What other way would I even know that right. you exist? Like, I mean, if boat if, builders if, if, aren't big on TikTok, no, they're not. They're not like <laughs> dancing and like, like gray sweatpants on a deck of a boat. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's been, it's been really, I don't know. It's been so fantastic. I, I like, I've met probably 25 woodworker types from Instagram in real life later, including two just last week. I met um, Keith yep. of KJ Sawdust and uh, Jason yep. from Bourbon Moth. And I was on their podcast when my book came out and I've been friends with them like you. I've been friends with them for probably three or four or five years. And when we met in person, it was like just picking up an old conversation right. among friends. Like it, it didn't feel like awkward that like i'm oh i'm meeting you in person it's, now for the first time that that, it felt like to me it's funny that we are still having the conversation around you know hey this isn't awkward yeah and you know because it's it, it yeah. has it's been you know tyler john and my life for the last four or five years you know yeah. especially with the podcast and going to events and seeing people like i'm never it's almost like we're never introducing each other, yeah. but just last week it's, you know, right. um, and Tyler, you asked me right before we hopped on, it's like, we went away with a couple friends. There was 38 people that we went on the glamping trip with and we, we only knew uh-huh. two people wow. and we were there like, Oh, how uh-huh. do you know? How do you know Matt? And I was like, um, well, Instagram. And they're like, Oh, that's weird. I'm like, no, right. I think we're beyond that. Like, I think that it's pretty normal now. It's like, because I feel like if I asked you yeah, how you met your husband, you tell, you tell me it was Tinder or Bumble. You know, it's like we're we're beyond this at this yeah. point. And, and, but it's funny where it's right. like, it's still this like thing that we dance around. Yeah, it is funny. Maybe it's our generation. Like the kids probably younger than us are like. Yeah, it's very normal. It's totally normal for them. We, I think the four, we're probably all in our forties, I would say, or late thirties somewhere. Thirties or let's just, Third, I'm not even going to thirties and forties. Okay. Let's put it there. Okay. So like, you know, we were, we're the last generation that grew up analog mm. and became adults digital. Like we remember mm. the invention of email, right? Like I remember the day I sent my first email you know, and like I was still using a typewriter. My first job out of college, I was a white house intern in the same class as Monica Lewinsky at the White House. And we had to type everything on like word processors, you know, like part of my job was researching speeches and we couldn't Google anything. You had to like get in a taxi and go to the Library of Congress and pull out a card catalog and, you know, do research on stuff. And so I think we're still a little bit 
we've got mm. the ghosts of the analog past within us somehow, where maybe it's still weird. Like, right. oh, I met you in real life. Oh, Cause be, I mean, before social media it was the message <laughs> boards and forums. I think I think yeah, that no. that's safe to say though that we we are um, the uh, in that generation of people that had both, and it still is. I mean, even internet dating and stuff. I think that we're right on that cusp. I'm 35 and right on that cusp of when people started meeting, like my brother met his wife online and it was, yeah. it was like a little bit weird at that point. You know, he's, he's three yeah. years older than me, but now it's super normal. Most people end up meeting yeah. online. My, my younger brother who's 32 is single and that's how he meets everyone is online at yeah. this point and we've we've kind of done that and you know we did have pre-internet we did have even I, w I don't know why i was thinking about it laying in bed the other night how i used to go to the library in town and how they used to like there was the card catalog still there and they used to check you out and like stamp your book for when you had to return it and then in high school it was everything was digital they scanned it like a upc yeah. at the grocery store there were like alarms that you could walk couldn't walk out without the book but we did have both of that stuff uh, both right. of those things and it's interesting to see mm -hmm. i think i don't know that's probably why i i have such little patience for a lot of the stuff today i think i'm an old man at heart and i'm like uh it's not <sighs> how you make a living that's not how you do things and hard work and this and that and it's um, it's, it's a way of life for a lot yeah. of people now. It is. It really is. I mean, it allows us to be so much more specific about our intentions too, to, to have, be online, the types of people we want to interact with or the types of work we want to see on Instagram. Like it's no longer just sort of a card catalog crapshoot. Um, you can be like, no, no, I'm very interested in how people make handmade, um, rolling pins. <laughs> okay, like yeah. that's a thing and I can go, I'm going to go really deep on rolling pins today and figure that out. Um, I went to a bar for the first time last weekend. Uh, let's see, first time in maybe a year and a half. Okay. And uh, I was in Provincetown up on Cape Cod and I was like, oh my gosh, I got to get back in the saddle. It's been like 18 months. I'm, you know, I'm the gay bars are back open. I'm going to go. And I walk in and, you know, there's like a smattering of 20 or 30 people. And I'm like, this is so random. How do you expect that you just hope you walk in a room somewhere and there's going to be the love <laughs> yeah. of your life standing across the bar? I'm like, this is why the apps are great because you can be like, you know, at least you know something about the person. In a bar, you're like, you're not going to walk up to someone and be like, right. okay, tell me your age and where you went to college and what your five what favorite was. things to do are. Yeah, like, you can already be like six dates in, <laughs> I would imagine by the time you meet somebody yeah. with yeah. online. So my, my wife and I used to go, we still go once a year. We usually end up going to the Cape, but we met in college and we went to Drexel. So our terms ended in the fall. So we would end up like our summer break was actually two weeks like at the end of summer, it was basically mid September. So we would go up and we spend a week um, up on the Cape. And the first time we went, I'd, I'd grown up going with my family and we had a, we had a house up there and we would go in the summer um, and like clean the house up and do maintenance and all that stuff. But I remember going into Provincetown and there being like these, I mean, it was insanity. 
um, like overly yeah. flamboyant parades and drag queens and just yeah. it was so funny. Um, and I was telling yeah. my wife about this and how crazy it was. And we ended up going up in September and it was just busloads of old people trying to get like the Cuffy sweatshirts <laughs> on sale. And she's like, yeah, this is really crazy, Tyler. And the, you see, it, I was like, yeah, this is not what it's like in the middle of summer. Well, it has changed a lot. And, um, you know, this is kind of a quality of the gay world, the gay life in America is we kind of often we were pushed to the outskirts. And so we had to kind of colonize these less than ideal places. I was going to say, and I wouldn't consider, made them cool. I feel like Providence yeah. is not uh, a less than ideal besides the fact that it's all the way at the tip of Massachusetts. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was all the way at the tip. I mean, P-Town and Fire Island, Fire Island in New York is the same version of, of P-Town. And they they are isolated for a reason because get, you could be arrested and beaten up by the cops for being gay in the 60s and 70s. And so they went to the places that were really remote because they mm -hmm. could kind of be crazy and do their own thing and not be bothered. Um, but eventually they made it cool. So people like Tyler go see it and they're like, this is fun. This is great. I was in P-Town last weekend. I'm telling you, it was filled with uh, bachelorette really? parties. Yeah, and there was a, a cruise, cruise ship, ship pulled into the dock, and so they all these like what? a cruise ship now comes to P Town. And I, it's since I didn't even know the harbor was deep enough to have a cruise ship there. Sorry, go and ahead. so no, that was it. it. Just it was like these hordes of basically a bunch of straight white people from Canada just piling out of the cruise ship, and I was like, oh my god, P Town is not the same. No, not the same. I, 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 we haven't we haven't been up um i mean going up as a kid you know at this point 10 years old 15 years old 20 years ago 25 years ago at this point um but then even even going up now it it is a lot different um and I, especially off season like off season it was yeah. like i said it was basically old people taking bus tours um like getting mugs mm. that say provincetown because they're you know 35 percent off and like buying all the the sweatshirts um and the fudge and everything yeah this is another drawback of assimilation too because as gay people have become more accepted there's been less need for us to go places to be safe together so you know p-town and fire island are still vibrant as gay communities but not as much in their aging. And I think younger guys and girls, younger people in the LGBT community are, eh, right. maybe they can live in some suburban town and they don't need to go to these sort of you know, I, isolated I would, spots. I would agree with you in the sense that, like, obviously, like, there's been a massive shift in acceptance. But what I struggle to see is in the professional world. And I, and, 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 yeah. You 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 speak on it more than me. Like what does that look like from your professional your career whether it's wine or woodworking like I feel like in the personal life it, yeah. there, there's been this massive move to, towards acceptance but in the professional world it is it, it hasn't. And that's and that's and that's sad. Like that's frustrating. Yeah. yeah, I mean I have a couple personal experiences with this, but I think I have to also count check my privilege right. here because I'm still a white guy. So to most people, right. I just look like a white, a white dude, right? And um, they may not even know I'm gay. Uh, and this surfaced in a chapter of my book when I went to the lumber yard for the first time to buy wood. 
to make my canoe. And I had no idea what I was doing. I'd never used a power tool. I had never used a saw. Like I had literally no experience. And yet I walked into this place bustling with contractors. And because I was wearing like a blue shirt and drove a BMW and I'm a white dude, I waltz in there and the owner showed me around and helped me buy lumber. And it was like a pleasant experience. And um, the whole time I was like on the inside, I was kind of like worried about being exposed and discovered as being mm. a complete amateur and novice. But I think on the outside, people were just like, oh, it's like, yeah, whatever, a dude right. in a BMW, let's get, let's sell him some wood. Right. And so I never thought anything about that chapter until there's a woodworker named Laura Mays on Instagram. She's a professor and chair of the Krenoff School of Fine Woodworking at Mendocino College in California. She's an incredible woodworker. Um, she's queer. She is um, always helping us think critically about, um, I think, sort of the queering of the woodworking space. And she and I are going to be on a panel next week at the Center for Art in Wood in Philadelphia talking about this very topic. Woodworking, wood artists, and just how, when, and why gay people have been able to exist in that world. But anyway, she read my book. And she posted a really beautiful review of my book on Instagram, like a really generous, thoughtful um, post. But then she also said um, she was shocked at that chapter where I went to buy lumber because she said she could come up with dozens of examples of her um, friends who are women um, or non, um, you know, non-gender conforming friends that would go into lumber yards and be completely yeah, mistreated just sort of ignored or not taken seriously um i mean she's the chair of a woodworking department she makes some of the finest furniture in the country and she goes into lumber yards to buy lumber and dudes are so condescending to her and just say awful things and so she helped me understand that even though i'm a gay man and i, I might think that that's a handicap in some ways i'm also still a white dude and um there's a normalization there that I, you know, just want to call out. So I haven't, anyway, I haven't faced a whole lot of discrimination in the workplace. In fact, I think it's helped my career in some ways. Um, wine business tends to be a little bit uh, glamorous. <laughs> and I think that sometimes um, there's a lot of people in that world that, that I can kind of rub elbows <laughs> with and it works out fine for me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it hasn't been devastating. Um uh, but the woodworking stuff is a whole different ball of wax. Um, I have been called every name in the book on Instagram. Um, and I save them sometimes. Like I do screen captures of the complete lunacy that happens on my page. Like last week I posted my book um, was named one of the best books of the year by USA Today. And like it was this gay pride article. Like here's this guy who built boats, builds boats and with his dad's tools and whatever. And I, you know, I got probably 20 or 30, um, like shocking comments that you can't even believe people still right. say these things in modern society. Um, and I, uh, I was just blown away and I'm constantly reminded that the reason we have things like gay pride is so that right. is because we still need them, uh, because there's still so much hate and division out there. And just, I mean, I had people throwing Bible passages at me. I had people calling me a fag and like, you know, fag shouldn't lunacy. be in woodworking. Like I mean, just, lunacy. you yeah. can't even, it's like, yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> I consider myself a 
pretty successful and I would say like mainstream-ish guy. It's not like I posted a picture of myself in like a red <laughs> sequence speedo. Okay? It wasn't a thirst trap. You know, I posted. It was a genuine. It yeah. wasn't a thirst. Yeah, exactly. There was no thirst trapping. <laughs> I was just saying my book is being critically acclaimed and they just wanted to cut me down. So that's, anyway, that's my only yeah, personal experience that, that, with it. So I don't, I have issues with people who, um, like you're an asshole, whether you're gay, whether you're straight, whether you're black, white, it doesn't matter. Like it's more personality yeah. based. Like if somebody annoys me because they're overly gay, they'd annoy like the same type of person who's overly straight would annoy me. It's just like just right. a, a little bit more reserved, you know, a little bit more in moderation. And that's what blows my mind that people like to like somebody or not like somebody based on a personality trait. Sure. Um, you know how they treat you. Sure. But because of their, you know, sexual preference or because of the color of their skin, it, it, it blows my mind that people still do that. And it also blows my mind that like after the first generation of people where you had kids and then your kid was gay like how are you not accepting of everyone at that point like once you have a generation with right. children i feel like all the f everything that that's different with people everything that you know whether they're special needs whether somebody has one arm whether they're like after that yeah. first generation you should be so accepting of everyone because it's like it's my child no matter what i love them right. And the fact that we're this far along of people procreating and having kids and, you know, being out and about and around more and more people that there's still some people that are so sheltered to say shit mm -hmm. like that or to feel that yeah. is just, it's insanity. I, I feel sometimes lucky that I'm not on YouTube because um, I think the comments I've gotten on Instagram are yeah. mild compared yeah. to the stuff I've, the shit I've seen on YouTube is yeah, wow it's, it's like, like barn com burner yeah, completely type. unfiltered like you know yeah it, it, hmm. to, to be frank like it's embarrassing you know i read it and i'm yeah i'm, I'm embarrassed for you yeah you know, and that yeah like who are how these do you people have that much time I, that's like another thing yeah it's like what sort of person are you that you had that much time to write that long of a response about a stranger that you know nothing about yeah and a lot of it's driven by, I think, the sense of other. So, like, you shouldn't be doing that because you don't fit the stereotype of what I think a person like you should be doing. Um, I have a good friend, Anne of All Trades is her mm -hmm. handle on Instagram, Anne Briggs. She's amazing. She's one of my closest mm -hmm. friends. And she, you know, she's building a wood school. She has a farm. She raises animals. She makes her own uh, yogurt. Like, she is a constant whirling dervish of energy and of content on YouTube. She's always building stuff. She posts videos on YouTube doing any sort of woodworking stuff. And I mean, it's shocking. These guys are like, get back in the kitchen. Right. It's crazy. Like, I mean, just dozens of comments that are just, oh my God, are they serious? Did you really just write that? And she sometimes will screen, crap, uh, screen grab them and then like post them on Instagram. Like, look at all these <laughs> fine followers that I have. Um, so I think actually women have it worse than gay guys in our realm in yeah. building, um, in construction, in woodworking. I think, because um, like I said, I still pass off 
for most people as just like some random white dude. And I, I have my other good friend, April Wilkerson down in Texas. Um, another person I respect tremendously and she works harder than anybody. I mean, she's posting like a hundred stories a day and two videos a week and it's mind blowing. Um, but she also works in the hot Texas sun and will wear a t-shirt and she's a woman and she's beautiful. And you read the comments on her YouTube page, it will peel the paint right. off walls. It's shocking what dudes will say about her body and about her being in woodworking. Um, I only highlight this because I think sometimes when we don't highlight it and we just say, like, we keep all everything general, um, we don't really know how right. bad it is. <laughs> but you turn your face to the fire and you look at the really nasty shit that goes on in social media. Um, and it truly is mind blowing. We have a long ways to go in this country. You know, it's in, in, I wanted to make a big effort not to make this about like, um, my account, but I had switched our logo to in support of pride. Yes. And thank a you. Ton I of saw people, that. A ton of people reached out and, you know, I have a lot of loved ones. My brother's gay, you know, but I, it's just, I, I think love is love. I support, I, I support all of that, but you know, I think what you just said is really important to note because I did, I was actually talking to John and Tyler offline. I'm like, this is crazy. Like the amount mm -hmm. of hate messages I'm getting mm -hmm. for, for supporting this. And, wow. you know, and like you, I think you, you may have posted something like it was my biggest unfollow. I lost a thousand followers. Some, yeah. So I was like, week. Oh, I, I, I never look. So I was like, I'm going to yeah. look at mine. And it was like this massive decline. Wow. And I was talking to my wife about it and, and she's like, you know what? fuck them like yeah. who cares and yeah. at and and part of me yeah i agree with that but the other part of me is like but i but that doesn't help yes i you know, know it's like I, it's yeah. like i i i want to I, I almost want to hear what they have to say if they can have mm -hmm. like a legitimate conversation with me i want to hear them out right and it's but it's so but it's so hard because it's like you know <clears throat> you're they're they're coming at it with such fire yes yeah and uh, it's um, how are you gonna how are you gonna change their minds? Right, you probably... and it's not that, and you we probably won't. But it but your the your your comment about the fact that this is you know we have to be aware of how bad some of this stuff is, whether it's you know, a female in in yeah. woodworking or you know uh, a gay guy in in boat building or whatever it it's. Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is, is that there's still this level of toxicity that, yeah. you know, is oftentimes just kind of swept under the rug. Yeah. Uh, it's sad. I, I didn't know you also lost a bunch of followers. I mean, oh, it's I, also not surprising. I yeah. I literally, <laughs> literally don't care. And it was, I think Tyler yeah. was like, hey, I mean, at least you got rid of the bad ones. Or, well, or, yeah, I feel like that sometimes too. It's like the cockroaches come out of the woodwork. So like once a year I'll post something gay. And I'll lose a, like a thousand or two thousand followers, and I'm like, all right, see you later. <laughs> all right, fine. Like they left, and okay. But I also feel like there's a certain responsibility that people like me probably have to help bridge this divide in our country somehow. And when I had my chat with Nick Offerman, he said one of the most interesting things. So when he played, um, you know, on Parks and Recreation, he was Ron Swanson, and he said it reminds everyone of their jackass bigoted uncle. And so it was a very beloved character, but he said he also took a real responsibility that he could speak to all audiences. And he, if Ron Swanson or Nick Offerman says, hey, maybe gay people are just humans and 
maybe black people are just like the rest of us, that maybe people would listen to that. Right. And I took a bit of a leap and I'm really glad I did. A few weeks ago, I went on a podcast called The Order of Man. Oh, yeah. Um, with the host, Ryan, Ryan Mickler. Yep. And he's got an enormous following. Like he just had Matthew McConaughey on there. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people would not expect that Ryan and I would be friends or that we would have shared values and that we would find things to talk about, about masculinity and manhood and um, canoe building. We connected because he's building a canoe with his son. Mm. And someone sent him my profile and said, oh, you're building a canoe. Oh, you should look at this guy, Trent. And so he reached out to me and, you know, I was like, oh, great. A, a dad building a canoe with his son. How wonderful. Um, you know, but then I learned more about um, his philosophy and and sort of his, you know, the reason why he has social media and YouTube and used it very effectively. And I think a lot of his followers probably maybe um, are not big fans of the LGBT community, mm -hmm. let's say. Uh, but we did a podcast together and he said it's one of his most downloaded of all time. I believe it. Yeah. Because people were like genuinely like, oh, oh, okay. If oh, like Ryan... a gay guy built a canoe. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right, great. Oh, try... oh, you know, and it wasn't like that was the, the, we didn't even talk about that in the podcast. And I, some of my gay friends were like, why didn't you even bring it up? And I said, I didn't want that to be the focus because I think it's so important that more and more people um, just see me as a person who maybe builds boats mm -hmm. and that that's not the thing I lead with. Um, because I know a lot of these people are so kind of passionate in their in beliefs that if they knew right off the bat in the first second that I was gay, they would have turned it off right. or unsubscribed or whatever. Um so it's, I don't know if we'll ever get there, but I, I mean, I would like to, th I, I'd like to be optimistic and think we would, but it, it you know, yeah. I think what you're saying, it's like to, to discredit everything right off the bat, you know, it's like, you almost want to like, let me prove to, you know, and you, which you shouldn't have to for the record, but it's like, you, it's right. like, let me prove real quick who I am. And then we can talk about my personal love yeah. life if you, if you choose, you know, and it's, right. it's the, it, it's. It's just so wild to me, and the, the lunacy behind it, and the 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 lack of support and hate is just, you know, yeah. enormously frustrating. Uh, and this is coming from a very straight white man, you know. Yeah. And yeah, no, I I have you're an ally, and I appreciate you very much because we need you know we need people like you to just help us kind of you know, be taken seriously and normally and not sort of ostracized. And I think that, I mean, that goes for Tyler and John, like in all three of us, like that's, you know, we want to approach this and, and, and like Offerman, right. You know, make sure that we're, we're putting the right foot forward at all times and mm -hmm. supporting everyone and, you know, and being yeah. an advocate, you know, for what is right. And that's, you know, you know, oftentimes can be very difficult, but in a situation like this is, is frankly very easy. Yeah. I will say, um, that there's a phrase that we used, my editor and I have used in, in when I wrote my book, it's a phrase I think commonly used in among gay authors, um, which is don't spook the horses. <laughs> and so like, if you put on page one of your memoir, 
like a gay sex scene or something <laughs> or whatever. You will spook the horses. Like uh, I, any any guy who picks it up in a bookstore might be like, whoa. I think, I think you should challenge. I think your next book, chapter one, I'm gay. Chapter two, I built a boat. Chapter three. Right. <laughs> Just go right in yeah. and spooking the horses. Um, and it's almost, it's not like a bait and switch or I almost think of it like a Trojan horse because we wanted, I wanted so much. I wanted my book to be like mainstream. I did not want it to be pigeonholed as a quote right. gay book. And I told my publisher Harper Collins at the very beginning, the first day, I was like, if you market this as a gay book, I will mm -hmm. not write it. You, I'll give you your advance back. And I got a really handsome advance that was like three years of my work salary at my mm -hmm. day job. It was shocking. And I was like, all right, now the pressure's on. But if you put this on the fucking bottom shelf with all those gay books that only gay people read, like I'm not doing this. And they were very committed early on and so supportive and saying, we want to write your specific story and have it be universal. And that's what makes, I think, a story like this so powerful is that anyone can read it and find themselves in it. And um, we all straight, gay, whatever, a lot of guys struggle with their relationships with their dad. Um, and a lot of guys have lost a parent to cancer. Um, a lot of guys struggle to find their place in the world and figure out who they are and who they want to be. And those are the bigger themes of the book that I'm really proud of. And and in some ways, that's why I'm also really proud of like that podcast I did with Ryan Mickler, because I was like, yeah, I'm talking to this guy who it's like no one would ever think that I'd be on a split right. screen with him. <laughs> um, it's like uh, oil and water. But like we need we need more of that yeah. in this country. Like a big part of my book, too, was red state, blue state, like East Coast, Midwest. Um my dad's a cattle rancher, was a cattle rancher in South Dakota. And, you know, here I was living in New York and the Hamptons. And and um, we need more, I think, of the melding of all of these and people, people just and need, places. It's the fact that people care so much um, is an issue. That you're that passionate about something that you don't believe in. Where it's, it's just, it's none of your business. Nobody's springing this on you. And I think that is why it's important. You know, you don't need to write a book where that's the first thing that comes out of your mouth. Because if, unless you're writing the book for mm -hmm. those intentions and those reasons, it can be a side note, but that's that's not the, you again, you said the universal principles there. That's not something that you need to come right out and say, mm -hmm. um, and I think that there's just more important things and, and people, what you do in your personal life and who you love and it, it just shouldn't matter to everyone else. It, I don't get why if you have enough in your life, which is probably not perfect, what's it matter what Trent's doing or who Trent loves or anything else like that? It, it just, it, it blows my mind that that affects people so much that they get so angry and so upset about it where it's like, I don't know like gay or not gay i have so much shit in my life yeah. that if that's what you want to do like even if i cared about it how do you have time to care about it that much like who cares what trent's doing you know, know. <laughs> it, it's uh it it is and yeah. again like bringing kids into it this and that like i have children now i have two daughters and i i want them to be happy i want them to make decisions that they want that make them happy and as long as it's a healthy, safe decision, they're not getting themselves in trouble or hurting or harming anyone else, I don't care what they do. 
and I'll love them and support them for it. And it, Mm -hmm. it, um, it's hard to be able to tolerate like the parents that you see that aren't accepting of their children or who they want to be and everything else. Because I feel as a child, um, and as a young adult, and especially as a young man, you're looking for your parents' approval. You're looking for your father's approval, gay, straight, whatever you want to be. And that's so yeah. important in your formative years. And it's so tough to not have their acceptance or their approval. Um, and it, it, it's really so important for your kids to be able to provide that for them. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, the world needs more fathers like you. Um, and this podcast is going to drop on Monday, right? The day after Father's Day. So um, speaking of universal values, I'm, uh, this will be out after, I guess, the day out day after my appearance on CBS Sunday morning with Jane Pauley. And the um, I, a six-minute segment on um, national broadcast. And I'm promoting the book, talking about the book and my life. But most importantly, I think um, – CBS really wanted to tell a story on Father's Day, not just about a modern craftsman, but about someone who, um, during Gay Pride Month, uh, struggled a lot with their relationship with their father and how they overcame that and still found forgiveness and love and reconciliation in their life. Um, So hopefully by the time your listeners are are listening to this, they can go to the CBS Sunday Morning Instagram or website and watch the clip. Um, I haven't seen the whole thing yet uh, when we're recording this, uh, but, and they won't show me. So I'm going to be watching it live with, with everyone else. And I'm really excited. I, I hope it changes some lives and helps people see that you don't have to be just like a straight white dude to build things. And, um, you also don't, uh, um, how do I say this? There's a lot of, uh, dads out there that I think are going to, um, find special motivation in this piece too. We have very limited time on this earth to, tell the people around us that they're important to us and uh, 100%. Yeah. there's no there's no uh there's no second chance here no Trent this was fantastic man i appreciate you you being on for uh 2 hours it's already, and it's already good all luck done on cbs it's in, it's in the, Thank it's you. already I all ha- done i do man. have two questions it's done. <laughs> oh it's done yeah great job yesterday <laughs> thanks i do have two questions you can choose to answer or not answer okay right. uh wh- where did you get the blue boots Ah, they're Red Wing, yeah. And what kind of glue do you use? Oh, my God. That's amazing. <laughs> Look, I will reveal here, this is a world exclusive that now the world will know I use Type Bond 2. Damn. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, you're going to tell, yeah. you're gonna have to tell all your followers that to find out what kind of glue, you got to listen to the whole I will. Modern That's such a great idea. That shit went viral. Everyone was... That like, was only, so funny. The only gay people <laughs> so, Type so Bond 2, though. I'm like a big type on three man, man <laughs> myself. <laughs> hilarious. All right, Trent. Thank you. Appreciate you being on, man. Thanks a lot, Nick. I appreciate it. Thanks, Tyler. It's been a lot of fun. See ya. We'll chat soon. All right. Take care. Take care. Yeah, and just I, I, I think about all you know, how many people would just take their dad passing the tools, shove them in the garage and never do anything with it. But I think it really just attributes to, you know, him wanting to make something out of himself and all and, and really central c- centering around this mindset of, you know, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it at 100 percent. It's the same thing as the basically his career with the company that he is now. Exactly. There was yeah. 
really no incentive for him to make that a successful company other than for the fact that mm-hmm. he wanted to create something or create the best wine. Um, he also could have said, I'll make a mediocre wine and take a bigger salary. Exactly. But, I mean, it, the guy, you know, assume. well, I guess it's a guy. I think he said it's a guy. Um, yeah. Wanted it to be the best. And it, it wasn't about the financial return. And I think, you know, there was financial security that entire time. And um, <clears throat> motivation, like he said, was just to be able to do something the best that he could do. Well, until next week, who do we got coming up next week? I don't know. Unfortunately, John had audio troubles this week. We we are we're back to square one with our our audio technical technology. Danny, oh, we Wang. got Danny Wang. Danny Wang next week. If you guys don't follow Danny Wang on Instagram, um, he's well, he's got a couple of accounts, um, but his main design account is Danny Wang Design. But I think if you look up Danny Wang, he's also got one like I don't know three quarters of a million followers, and he basically posts memes and funny videos and tells you what stocks to buy not financial advice um but interesting designer that basically will travel anywhere to design he's got projects in california and las vegas i think he's got some in florida we'll find out more next week guys you know where to find us on instagram check us out if you have any feedback make sure you hit that survey monkey on our bio if we're doing a good job hit up itunes drop us a review uh, you know what? I keep saying that we're going to read one, read them. We haven't read them in a couple weeks. Why not pull one up real quick? If I can keep just chatting, chit-chatting while think... I look for these reviews, I can scroll down and pull something up. Here we go. What, what are you going to say? Um, probably reading them would be a little bit of incentive for people to leave reviews. Not, I mean, not that that's the reason, but um, to get people on there and leave reviews. It is important for us. Uh, we're not yeah. just review whores. Um, no, no. I mean, kinda, we got a, we got a couple not so great ones. It's fine. Actually, I, I actually a three star, a four star, and the most of them five stars. Appreciate that. Um, let me scroll down to this long one. Let's see what this three star is all about. All right, came here for Norm, and I liked it so much that I went back and started from the beginning. Love the cat's interview so much. His truth and enthusiasm were infectious. Maybe he should lock in. Uh, be locked in a room with one, episode 118, Justin Fink, doom, gloom, antiquated thought process, fine home building. They should look inwardly to their process, a.k.a. death by meetings, coming from a corporate computer science background to teaching. I have read and written lots of procedures that needed to be understandable from a 15-year-old ADHD, ADHD teen. I'm having trouble reading this one. Uh, old to stubborn thought resistance... Might have to skip this one. I'm having a hard time reading it. <laughs> I just don't know if I'm reading if I'm reading it incorrectly or if the sentences aren't put together. I don't know where he lives, but da, 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 da. Um, I want to see. Well, why? Why are they three stars? I want to hear some feedback. Blame Justin. Um, it was going to be five, and then Justin. I guess Damn. can't wait for Benjamin Uyeda uh, episode. You guys are on the border at the times. Don't fall into this craft is a dying dark side. Sounds like uh, it's a, actually very supportive. So I'm guessing the three may have been just, you know, not thinking that we were perfect, which appreciative. But um, 
I would love that feedback on the Survey Monkey so we can kind of digest it and figure out. Uh, and then the most recent one, we got one from RCNR. I love the podcast. You guys really help put things to in perspective for fellow builders. When I'm having a tough day at work thinking I'm the only one dealing with these issues, it's comforting to listen to you guys knowing others are dealing with the same issues. Keep up the great work, and thanks for taking the time out of your schedule to produce this content. People love guys, commiserating. I get, yeah, that's seriously. When we do have podcasts where everyone's upbeat and... We have had some pretty deep, gloomy podcasts. Yeah, I feel recently. like it's when the three of us get together where we're just burnt out. And say, yeah, but it's it's important. Let's let's peek up, peek down, and keep on trucking. All right, guys. Until next week. Appreciate you listening. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Duration Molding and Millwork. In a world of ever increasing lead times and escalating pricing, how about a product that? gives you neither that's right even completely custom molding profiles are produced in just two weeks from duration and as other molding and siding product line prices continue to march upward durations remains the same get exactly what you want quickly efficiently and cost effectively to learn more about duration poly ash products please visit their website at durationmillwork.com and be sure to check them out on ig 